Um, okay, so you ready? I'm we'll get started. Are. Yeah. All I'll right. Fire up these cameras. I didn't. Yeah. Look no, this they're good on. For nothing. They're on. All right. All right. I know, and I don't know if you noticed, but I have my Nirvana shirt. I do. Because your name is Kurt. I know, <laughs> and uh, how I. How cheesy am I? Not at all, Ashley. I'm flattered. Uh, I actually met Corny Love. You, you want to hear my Corny Love story real quick? Please. It's actually kind of funny, and I'm not going to throw oh nothing too salacious here. Okay. But uh, it was really amazing. I uh, I knew this woman who's sort of a uh, like a psychic to celebrities, especially like Get really out. intense like rock and roll New York celebrities. Perry. Lions, I believe is her name. I haven't seen her in a while. Sort of uh, of the generation of New York that might know women around Courtney's age. And when they were, you know, they're both still lovely and and rock stars. But, uh, you know, I'm sure they were like, you know, wild back in the the early 90s and stuff, you know. So when I met Perry, uh, Lions especially, who's Courtney's like friend and like personal Psychic. psychic. She kind of latched on to the Kurt thing. And I've always been aware of like your name. My name being Kurt. Um by the way, if you ask my mom why Kurt, she says either uh it's Kurt Vonnegut or Kurt Russell who inspired oh, that name. Of course. And I weirdly, I'm somewhat jokingly, but also seriously, consider myself to be something of a hybrid between those two guys. I see it, yeah. You know, like sort of a little bit, you know, a- animated and perhaps right. roguish in that sort of classic um, Kurt Russell vibe, but then also that sort of, uh, you know, intense, slightly histrionic yeah. literary way that that Kurt Vonnegut that is has. so like cool. A little bit of brains and a little bravado, like smushed together, you know. Right. But Kurt, yeah, being a young person with with Kurt, and you know, obviously being young when he, you know, took his own life, yeah. and it was weird. So anyway, so fast forward to like probably like six years ago, I'm in New York City, and I get a uh, text from Perry Lyons, who I met at like a cool little private art opening mm-hmm. in some uh, Chelsea townhouse uh, for this couple who uh, is big in the fashion world. Actually, the, the woman especially runs this line called uh, Nanette Lapore. I don't know if you know it. It's like, I feel cool. like I've heard of that. Yeah, it's but... cool. It's like, but uh, very successful, sort of like, you know, n- n- nice, but very cool designs and right. great craftsmanship. Uh, 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 Nanette Lapore, not a sponsor for the show, but, you know, uh, it was amazing. Or but, we can work on that. <laughs> but she had this cool, like, townhouse ex- right. uh, in the West Village and basically did a salon style showing of a bunch of paintings. And one of the painters, I guess, was friends with this Perry Lyons. And I just happened to be there. So we met and kind of hit it off. She was so funny and smart and kind of nuts in the way that I like, you know? So anyway, fast forward to like, maybe like two months later, she goes, um, Kurt, um, I got invited to watch the Golden Globes at Courtney Love's new boyfriend's house in Soho. Do you want to watch the Glo- Golden Globes with me and Courtney Love and her boyfriend? I, I was oh like, God, oh, I yeah. love it. Yeah. So, uh, so I go with Perry and I'm nervous because I'm like, you know, like, does, yeah. how often does she, does she run into a Kurt, like, who's like in the arts and culture stuff? That is, is true. You know, and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to like. Yeah. bring anything to the table if it's like not a deal but it's like how is it not not a thing like yeah. she looks me in the eye and it's right. another kurt you know right. so i get there and by the way number one when you're in a room with courtney love no one else is in the room it's it's uh you know heliocentric yeah. and everything revolves around courtney and if it gets away from her the the attention and by the way she was amazing 
she in, in every way she was lovely she looked great she looked really great and she was so funny and she deserves to to have things revolve around it because she is the coolest person in the room like it's not even not even close right so anyway we're we're in uh she was uh dating this guy who's like a filmmaker real estate guy it was one of those things where like the door is like right on the street in soho in new york it's just like okay. a, a door in the street and you open a door and you're like where what like where am i you know so we're watching the golden globes it's me perry lyons corny love and this guy she was that dating. So I don't cool. even know if they're still together. It would be cool because they had a cool vibe. I hope they are. I don't know if they are. Uh, and then two seconds later, uh, Neil Strauss shows up, who actually recently, to make this relevant to the NFT conversation, uh, was brought on to do a lot of uh, fictional, if not like novel-like writing for the Bored Ape Yacht Club. They actually hired Neil nice. Strauss. Neil Strauss did uh, the book, The Pickup Artist. Yes, you know, yeah, 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 it, yeah. It was great. Uh, you know, that uh, is so amazing. Spawned some weird uh, peacocking, yeah. uh, you know, pickup artist types uh, out there. You know, and he's come around in a really interesting way. He's a really interesting writer and journalist, uh, Neil Strauss. But anyway, after being there for about a half hour, Neil Strauss rolls up, and with him uh, is is a friend who I guess he's introducing to Courtney and Courtney's boyfriend, who's this like gorgeous, like 22 year old young model, sort of like it girl type, not tall, uh, you know, runway, but like just absolute sexy and, yeah. and cute and beautiful. And uh, so she comes over and at that time, Courtney was about to launch uh, a lingerie line or she just had and this was like her second line of lingerie so i'm sitting there with with neil strauss courtney love the boyfriend perry lyons and every like commercial break during the golden globes this girl would go into uh courtney's bedroom and come out and model the various lingerie looks how fun it was like it was fun and it was also like really sexy and and it was just like a weird thing but it was it was amazing but i got this like one moment she was like keeping her distance from me in a way where she yeah. was kind of like who's this you know who's right. this kurt because when i first was introduced to her and we kind of came together she kind of did look at me like oh yeah like yeah you're, you know but there was this other thing too where i felt like i got there at the end of the night where when we kind of came together again and she sent me on my way i felt like i got the Kurt blessing from her. She kind of like oh, gave it to nice. me like, like where, you know, it was like the Courtney love nighting where I was like, I, I've always been a Kurt, always will be a Kurt. Right. But you know, I got that, that little sprinkle of yeah. Courtney love fairy dust, like go, go on Kurt. You, you're good. Yeah. You got it. You know, that's such a cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I think she's, a, she's awesome. She's yeah. She's a, great. She's a badass. Mm -hmm. And you know, the 90s men. The 90s were a special time. Also, I just saw the Batman, which was okay, apparently so modeled after Kurt Cobain to some degree. Like apparently- You're kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that one song, that one Nirvana well, yeah, song is like there. basically a companion piece to the score, right? And yeah. and he's kind of, he's doing a lot of things. He's not only doing Kurt Cobain, uh, you know, he's doing a few other things, but- the director, this guy Matt Reeves, apparently was like, "Yeah, he's." We had a big conversation, not only on how that song "Something in the Way" mm -hmm. was influential to the mood and the vibe, but it was it was very obviously also something to 
put you know our yeah. pats Pattinson, Pattinson into this place of this sort of right. like recluse sort of genius emo grunge uh, kind of guy you know so i've been on a nirvana kick and apparently that song on spotify has gone up like four thousand sure, percent and because there's to- a lot of rediscovery of nirvana right now going right, on right, yeah right, like right. a lot of people don't know about them which I, is yeah. so exciting for yeah. people like us we're yeah, like yeah. yes finally welcome join us yeah yeah and that moment uh, i'll never forget my grandma lived with us growing up mm. uh you know like the basement renovated turned into a little grandma right. apartment kind of thing she had a little yeah. tiny tv and you know when we were young me and my brothers and stuff uh you know my parents were like you know don't watch too much tv or don't watch this or don't watch this. But, right. but i remember it was like an afternoon and i was uh down there and i remember being like a little dark in there and i was watching mtv and i'll never forget i think it was tabitha soren who was like one of their like MTV VJs who had like a, a breaking news. And I was down there alone. Oh, I was down there alone. And it was like this breaking news. And I was a kid. I, I don't remember what the year was exactly, but I was young. What year did what, he? Was it? I feel like that was 90, 97. Well, no, that or may, not that far. Earlier? Yeah, check no, it out. I think it was earlier. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that breaking news. And and I, I believe it was Tar- Tabitha Soren. Maybe it was Kurt Loder, another Kurt. Oh, no, I was way off. 94. 94, yeah, yeah. 94. Yeah. But I remember that messing me up. It did. That one, I it's mean. actually it, coming up April 8th, it says. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. No, well, he passed April 5th, and he was, um, I guess, found April 8th. Whoa. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to Kurt. Shout out to all yeah, the Kurts out there. All the Kurts. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. And to all the new Nirvana fans, new and old. <laughs> no this doubt. This is awesome. No doubt. And if you're one of those like uh, Gen Z kids, like throwing on old band t shirts, like you better listen to the music, whatever t shirt, you know? Right. Right. You know? Yeah. I so, feel like these Gen Z kids are like skating where like my generation like got like so much like 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 hipster like mm-hmm. uh criticism and stuff these gen z kids like they're walking around they don't listen to these bands like with these t-shirts like right. nobody's giving them any uh crap you know? I, come on so which is your favorite no band? i just sounded really crusty there like no. young kids these days <laughs> wearing t-shirts can't even wear that shirt my day like <laughs> you don't deserve to wear that shirt that's so funny no i feel the same way so which is like your favorite band your- my favorite band yeah oh my god so uh, real quick i uh i just saw tool do you know tool another 90s i know that i was gonna say that's another 90s outfit. band yeah. yes so i saw but I, was, them. I was never too familiar with that they're not my favorite band i say that because um i saw them at barclays this relatively new venue in brooklyn sort of like downtown brooklyn the nets the brooklyn nets play there and stuff okay I saw them on the heels of the release of their latest album, which came out like I think either late August or September 2019, right? Oh, the so last, the recently. last fall between between uh, before, before COVID, the apocalypse, before the COVID <laughs> apocalypse, right? And uh, they hadn't released an album in 13 years. Their last album was 10,000 Days, and I went to that show too. I was like in college when that album came out. I went to that show and. Uh, so when they released this album 13 years later, a lot of tool nerds were like waiting around for it and it dropped and it kind of exceeded expectations. And yeah. on one hand, it was like, well, you know, it took them 13 years to do it. They 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 certainly had enough time to deliver something right. really amazing. And it came out at a time where I don't think anybody really knew exactly what we were headed towards. 
but perhaps people felt it. They didn't know, but like like some sort of animal that knows a hurricane is coming or something. It was like, why do I feel this way? I gotta, I either gotta let it out or I'm yeah. gonna do something. I, I don't know. And I know I felt that way. So, uh, this girl who uh, got two tickets, she was actually going to invite a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, who I think she was romantically interested in. And he had to bail for some reason. I don't know if he did it strategically because maybe he knows I'm a bigger fan or wasn't interested in her or something, but she ended up inviting me. And uh, so I was very happy to go. And I remember later that night, uh, and by the way, that Barclays show, November 19th with Tool, was just so amazing. And once we rolled into COVID, and of course, you know, they had to shut that tour down. They had like a global tour. Uh, It was so incredible. Uh, But I'll never forget her saying to like a, um, to after we got like drinks after this, this waiter came over and like, well, you guys, what'd you guys do tonight? Cause we had like the post-show glow. And she was like, I took Kurt to see his favorite band, Tool. And I remember being <laughs> like, well, I don't know if they're my favorite band, but right. but anyway, but then I had to think about it. I was like, wait, are they? I don't know. I don't know if they are. Maybe they are. So anyway, so uh, I actually used to be in a band and I promise I'm not going to talk about that at all. But my old guitarist, Mario, uh-huh. um, who's a great guitarist, informed me that uh, back in like late February, I'm not sure like what what date in February 20 something, maybe they were playing uh tool. We're playing again at a new venue on long Island. And he was like, come, come see tool. Let's go see tool. They're back on tour. They're in that second leg. And I was like, I had such a beautiful, like bottled pre COVID yeah. experience. And I, I was so grateful in hindsight to be able to see that big arena right. show and it was sold out and they were, coming right on the heel. All the music was still kind of new, you know, like you had the album, right. but, it, but it like you knew it enough, but it would, it but you didn't know fresh. it. Yeah. Like it that wasn't like two and a half years. It was fresh. Yeah. And, and you know, I hadn't seen them in 13 years. Right. So it hit so hard. I was with this gorgeous girl and uh, it was just a lot of fun. It was perfect. So my, my buddy Mario, who is, you know, calls me, he's like, dude, tool me and you, man, Long Island. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to bookend it. You know what I mean? Like, did I already yeah. do it? So anyway, he was like, come on. So, you know, so I went, he and I went and it was very obvious that everybody was definitively two years older, two years more weary, two years more tired wow. and two years more sensitive, uh, two years of more realness, like whatever veneer or membrane of like illusory existence that we had pre-COVID. COVID made a lot of things more real. Yes. That I have to when, agree. when I saw that November 19 tool show, it was very cinematic, but it very obviously took place in a bubble, a, a sort of like, uh, you know, a BC time, you know, that when we saw this show and it was, it was like a cold night uh, on Long Island, you know, like people in the parking lot are like, for the love of God, yeah. you know? So everybody was like really, you know, like, so everybody crams into this new venue and there was a period uh, towards the end of the show, uh, right before the encore, where everybody just was kind of floored in a good way, but also like mowed over by the experience. People had lost, uh, myself included, the muscle memory uh, and, and the physicality in a way and the spiritual yeah. sort of fortitude that 
you need to kind of have to stand up against this like musical onslaught that is this right. band tool. So by by the end of like the main set before the encore, the whole audience was like like in their seats, like where November. 19 2019 it was like more 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 but by like the end of like the first set before the encore people were floored so they come out for the encore and you know these guys in tool are 57 years old give or take the lead singer maynard 57 years old so there was this point where they're about to like close out the show with what's probably their greatest song ever which is on this new album uh fear inoculum the the song's called the song's called invincible it's amazing but uh there were so many people in this audience who were just exhausted. And it was strange because the first time, you know, this, the singer from Tool, he does, he sometimes will crack a joke and, but he got on the mic and he goes, Hey, he goes, guys. And he was sympathetic. He wasn't being a dick. He goes, he goes, I know. He goes, this is exhausting. He goes, yeah. you guys think you're exhausted. He goes, yeah. and he was being cool about it. He wasn't being a dick. He understood. Right. He goes, man, he goes, guys, you know, um, I'm 57, going on 37, pretending I'm 27. This goes back to Kurt, oh. like many rock stars took themselves out at 27, you know, in the, in this little prime bubble. Um, so these old dogs, number one, proved why they're rock stars and everybody in that audience right. wasn't <laughs> because they were Viking warriors who were there. And, right. and But at the same time, and I, I'd seen Tool several times and and I've seen Maynard and some of his other side projects, a perfect circle a bunch of times. And he has another band called Pussyfur, which is interesting and more stripped down and yeah. irreverent. So I've seen this guy so many times, but this is the first time he really addressed a, a full audience and acknowledged like his humanity. And, and in a way the whole band did where not only that they had to like win the audience back, not because they weren't, Everybody wasn't super happy to see them, but we were exhausted. And what was cool was when they saw everybody just like, oh, and there were a few people in the audience like, come on, get up. We were just, uh, we were beaten down in a really a a good way. Yeah. But what was interesting about that was these guys to get everybody up again, they had to kind of like emerge and win the audience back, which meant like where normally they're just playing this very intense, intricate music and kind of like standing in place. They had to kind of like engage with the crowd in a way to be like, no, you're at a rock show. And it was cool to see them. And if you know this band, you know, they're kind of like in their spaces and their little sort of safe space as they're rocking out. But when they, after Maynard was like, hey man, I'm 57, trust me. And it, it was so vulnerable. But then after that moment, they kind of all looked at each other. And I was like, just kind of like side stage. They all looked at each other and they were like, yo, we got to work. Like, yeah. we, like, we, like not just show up and play. We got to like engage. So, you know, the bassist, the guitarist, the drummer is always killing it. But even Maynard, who normally like kind of hangs back uh, to like maintain uh, this idea that it's not like ego front man mm-hmm. he actually like kind of like stepped out and was like let's go and it was insane because it really like exponentially invigorated the crowd for that last track because That's they turned they like turned into those 27 year old kids again right because once he evoked his age at 57 yeah. and then was like uh going on 37 but then 27 what happened was is they all everybody suddenly became yeah. like 27 again they connected and and we like shared this experience as a crowd which i've never experienced in any concert like towards the end of your set to stop and acknowledge that you're old and tired right and and then 
once it was acknowledged to set it aside and tap into that core youthful right. rock and roll like eternal yeah. spirit with the band like consciously with the band oh, it was amazing yeah. so it's another crusty like you know grandpa kind of story <laughs> but it was also honestly one of the most like weirdly like intimate moments i've ever experienced yeah. and it did something again i so said i was happy for that bookend maybe tools my favorite band i don't know long I'm gonna answer i have to like <laughs> revisit tool because i i vaguely remember like some of their stuff um but I, I can't recall, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not a band that I was super familiar with. Yeah, I, they're kind of niche, you know, yeah. a, a, a Tool fan. There's maybe like a little bleed over, like some casual stuff. But like at this point, like, right. you know, most of the people going to see this band have probably been around for they, a few yeah, decades. they know them. You know, but anyway, the moral is I was happy I did that bookend experience because right. all those songs on all the previous albums and all the songs on that latest album, once we moved through COVID and so much shifted and changed that they all took on this new context. And some songs that maybe fell a little flat pre-COVID right. um, suddenly were like rejuvenated right. with this new context. And then other ones that really like hit for one reason or another, this time around they were almost like too prescient or, or whatever like exoskeleton we had on that's been ripped away, like those tracks, they were coming through in a way where I feel like the audience was suddenly hearing the lyrics in a way that was really real, where previously they were just like maybe singing lyrics or yeah. just engaging with it in a sort of metaphorical capacity or sort of like a removed placebo. Suddenly all the things that this guy's saying uh, which is intense, right? It's not, you know, pop music. He's, he's going for the jugular. They were really hitting and really resonating. Yeah. Like we didn't have that, the, our guards up. We didn't have our armor anymore. So so when those lyrics were coming through and we were downloading, I, I'm speaking largely for myself, but also kind of serving, yeah. it was a lot, you know? So by the end of that show, it was just like, Jesus, you know? So maybe for so all those reasons, yeah. Maybe because yeah. like I frankly don't know any other musicians who who are bringing it like that in the way that right. I like. Now the question is is like, do you want your two and a half hour con rock concert to be like an existential psychological mm -hmm. exorcism? Is like that what you're into with music? Like I think for me the answer is yes. But Definitely. trust me, I wanted to go see Ariana Grande or something after that. Yeah. You know, and I was like, give me some some pop. <laughs> You know, right. no disrespect to Ariana. She's a badass too, but uh, I was going to, yeah, that was going to be my next question because, um, you know, before we move away from music, yeah, 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 yeah. obviously like I am 90s kid. So I mm -hmm. love the, the grunge, you know, yeah. Nirvana and, and yeah. everything else. Yeah. But I have to admit mm. Backstreet Boys. Oh, piece of my heart. <laughs> is that one of their songs? No, no, no. no is that, is that a, no, it's maybe, not. It's, okay. I don't a know. Piece I of my heart. That's, it should be. Yeah. Somebody say that. Yeah. Get that. Pass that along. Wait, wait. What's yeah. the shape of my heart? That's what it was. Is that Backstreet yeah. Boys? Yeah. Yeah. Show me the shape you know the <laughs> of my heart. I love it. I messed yeah. that up. Uh, you were pretty close. That's uh, something yeah. like that. Shape of my heart. I just, I felt like it balanced, you know, yeah. like all my like existential, like, oh, yeah. the world. Well, I think. I it think was like a nice little escape to like just pretty things, you know? You're so right, because so yeah. much of the 90s, early 90s, like all those grunge bands, those yeah. hard bands, when started moving into that like TRL age, yes. it really was a nice uh, like like 
like light yeah. epilogue to what right. was really really like, intense. I don't energies. really want to think about the world right now. Yeah. So I'm Imagine, gonna, remember I'm TRL? Chill. Like what sort of uh, you know like heaven was that? School and like rushing <laughs> yeah. to turn on to see who got number one. Yeah, man, those were like some simple times, man. Those are so. I think man, we're dating ourselves. Events. All right, let's let's talk about young <laughs> stuff. Let's talk about NFTs. Let's talk, yeah, let's talk about NFTs. So. You are, um, for, you know, a, a brief um, description of the many hats that you wear, but mm -hmm. for Superfine, mm. um, you are in charge of the NFT component, right? And bringing all these artists together yeah. for the fair. Mm -hmm. So le let's dive into that. Yeah. Well, first I should say what Superfine is, yes. right? So, you know, we're in Miami and largely Miami Art Week is... Art Basel, Miami Beach mm -hmm. Art Week, right? It's early December, usually that first week of December, right. first, second week of December. And, you know, the, the convention center, huge, massive fair, you know, I think it's probably the biggest fair in America over the course of the calendar year. And obviously all these satellite activations, I can rifle off 10 other fairs. So um, Superfine uh, has showed during Basel before, um, they also just recently wrapped up just a week ago, another fair in San Francisco. But during this Basel, I think the guys who run this fair, the two co-founders, Alex Mito and James Milley, I think they saw an opportunity largely after having discussions with, uh, you know, city council members and, and various, you know, people on neighborhood boards and right. the mayor and all this kind of stuff that, after last year's spring break, which looked fun, but it also got a little crazy, that it would probably be a good idea for South Beach especially to introduce some curatorial programming to sort of, you know, not, not I don't want to say counteract, but sort of supplement culturally all these yes. people funneling into the city. And, you know, this weekend there's like South by Southwest and, you know, maybe due to spring break, some people dip, but we felt like and we knew there were still a lot of people in Miami mm -hmm. who like art, uh, yeah. a lot of people who um, are interested in NFTs or in certainly crypto people who didn't dip, who didn't leave, right. uh, who are here maybe not every day, uh, three sixty five, but they're down here. So they wanted to do something that not only uh, you know facilitated uh, a larger sort of cultural experience during spring break but something that can exist outside of the monster that is art basel miami beach yes so alex who i've been friends with for a long time i actually met him years ago like maybe like 2011 maybe nice. he opened uh like a like a, a fun gourmet hot dog stand on allen street uh in new york city uh, and he came from like a line of a bunch of restaurants and interesting venues. He, one of those kids who gets like thrown into, you know, uh, you know, family biz, uh, right. you know, he's probably running restaurants at like 13, yeah. like one of those guys and takes a lot on his shoulders. And he's just like one of those dudes. And he's a, he's a great guy. And he, uh, I think he went to, um, uh, university of Miami and, you know, so oh, he's nice. kind of like, so he knows uh, he's like the... a, a, a kind of a Miami guy. Yeah. I, I don't know to what percentage he would say he's a Miami dude, but enough that he's sort of a, like to some degree, a native son. So he told me, uh, early, early this year that he wanted to do an art fair during spring break in Miami. And he had already secured, uh, this outdoor, like megalithic parking garage designed by the Swiss architecture firm 
uh, Herzog and Demuron. Uh, and it's crazy. 1111 Lincoln Road. It's like, it's yes. big. It's not so the and fair. It's beautiful. It's cool. Yeah, it's, it's a, really cool. It's a, it's a, a cool sexy spot. venue. Yeah, yeah, it is cool. So the fair, super fine art fair, Miami Beach, is on the seventh floor of this parking garage. Uh, it opened today. Well, the fair opened Thursday at 6 p.m. Uh, but today, uh, the fair doors open at noon, Saturday, right? Saturday. Mm -hmm. uh, doors open at noon. And I think it goes pretty late. And then uh, somewhere around like 10 p.m., I think the main fair closes, but offsite at the Miami Beach Botanical Garden, which is another pretty sexy venue, we're doing our after party for the fair, uh, where we have all sorts of other programming. And that's like turned up a little bit, a little bit more like yeah. heavy hitting, uh, a little bit more like in intense uh, activation, but also a little more sexy too. Uh, so we invite people, even if you're not directly engaged with Superfine, to check out that uh, botanical garden activation tonight. And then Sunday is our last day of the fair. We go pretty much all day till about like eight o'clock, I think. Okay. Yeah. So, so you a full can, day tomorrow too. Yeah. So we got two days left of the main fair tonight. We have the VIP after party. It should be great. That's amazing. Yeah. So come to, come to either. I, I recommend definitely coming to the fair and, uh, you know, definitely come to the garden too. It should be sweet. If you For can get sure. tickets. So I was invited to do largely the NFT activation at the main fair and then also bring in uh, sustainable NFT projects into the garden party too, that are uh, the garden, uh, mm -hmm. the activations there are very strategically sustainable projects and stuff like that. And we can go into all the details more. I feel yes. like we're talking a lot. But no, 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 you're, you're perfectly fine. And you're giving us so many details. Um, Cause I think, uh, super fine. It's it's not as well known as like for example when you say to someone the Coconut Grove Art Festival and things like that. So yeah. the fact that you're giving us all the details is perfect. Yeah. Because um, Miami, we do love art here. You guys like your art. Yeah, we like we like our art. We like mm -hmm. doing things, having things to do like this. You know, in the yeah. weekend or in, towards the end of the to, towards the weekend. Yeah. Where uh, it's not very touristy. Right. If that makes sense. Right. And, and we have something exciting to, yeah. to look forward to. So yeah. I think this is amazing what you guys yeah. are doing. And, yeah. you know, I see people listen like real quick. So last Basel, this most recent December, mm -hmm. I was invited uh, to speak at a couple panels at like DecentralCon which was a NFT crypto convention, uh, sort of at yes. uh, the courtyard. Uh, yeah. I don't know what that was, uh, some Hilton or I don't, I don't know, some big uh, hotel near the airport has a big convention center. They did mm -hmm. a big NFT conference over the course of a couple of days. And it was great. It was cool. And I met a lot of people. But there was a component where I was like, I need to see some, you know, some wealthy, pretentious art collectors <laughs> uh, dressing in designer threads yeah. and being very lovely. I was so happy to have both, you know, two days of like right. full on like NFT bros and, and and everything else that comes with it. And, and I, I really liked it. But I loved that during Basel last year. I could get that and then I could go over here and still get right. everything I still enjoy from the contemporary art world, but in a way seen afresh where, you know, up in New York, you see a lot of like, you know, the high fashion meets the high mm -hmm. art, whatever that means. Um, so I love that Decentral Con was like this, like uh, this primer and sort of palette cleanser to allow me to right. return back into the traditional art world and really appreciate everything it, it does yeah. in its own way. But with that being said, I, I still feel like what I like about Superfine and why I think 
the NFT component um, is working or would work, um, it's because they've always kind of like done their own thing. You know, they're very interested in giving space to emerging artists uh, and understand that not every artist like shows up on the scene like a total genius. Like some people are working it out, you know, like there's some people like, you know, I'm an arts and culture journalist. I've written for like amazing publications um, to, to land those stories, especially when I was doing my thing. Um, it was so hard to focus on an emerging artist. Yeah. Let's give it a second. Darn it. I went away. That Somebody never was mowing. Happens. Somebody was mowing. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Uh, no, hey, people got to mow. People got to mow some grass, you know? That has never M happened. Miami still has grass. Like, we, yeah, we do a little bit. That kind bit. of grass. Not, not only grass. <laughs> I'll talk about that later. Anyway, what I, what I like about Superfine is there's no pretension. Right. There are moments where I think largely, you know, sometimes I want to go, oh, I don't know about that. Or, but, what I like about them being open to these emerging artists is you have discoveries and things that are sort of uh, outside the box enough in a way where the art world, so to speak, the upper echelons of the art world, you know, might be like, oh, that's weird or something. Yeah. But for me, a lot of the work often has like an, like an outsider artist component right. where over the 15 plus fairs that they've done over the years, I always discover an artist that I really like. And it's usually an artist doing something so outside the realm of right. what artists have to do to be successful in these big institutional spheres. I really feel like we're seeing like this like increasing homogenation of fine artworks because it works. It's sort of product tested and, and you know, they have to get it done. We see this with like movies too, yeah. like rolling out the same IP with a little tweak because, hey, we're spending all this money. We got to make sure it works, you know? Yeah. So what I like about Superfine is it doesn't have that homogenation. There are things where artists at a sort of emerging level sometimes tend to land on the same sort of archetypes and stuff, like working out kind of figurative painting without, yeah. without that MFA hand necessarily. Like that's something people are working through, but those can be good. And I, I've been watching people sort of connect with those, but it's the artists who are doing something that is so unique to them, uh, where they're kind of coming out of nowhere, where I love that Superfine can give them a handhold, give them a grip to, to not only continue showing with Superfine, but to meet some local gallery right. people and just start making that making that climb. You know, a lot of people in the art world think you have to like emerge yes. as like a blue chip artist and read all the books and say all the right things and do all the right things out of Yale, you know? And it's like, I didn't get into the art game to talk to a bunch of robots coming out of Yale. Like, that's not what I'm in for. Like a bunch of like rigid <laughs> academics, like right. reciting the same gospel and supporting the same yeah. dogmas and upholding all the same orthodoxies right. while saying, you know, fight the patriarchy. It's like, <laughs> it's like you're, you're essentially uh, an indentured cultural servant for the rest of your life, you know? Right. And I'm certainly not going to be that. So, so yeah, I thought super fine. Um, has always done its own thing for better or worse. Yeah. Some people in the art world don't like that Superfine, kind of doesn't 
give a shit what you think. And I love it. If anyone cares about my opinion, I do. Well, let me <laughs> you throw know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, hold on. I've been talking a lot. Let me. Yeah. No, throw no, no. Please, no. Um, no, I, I think it's it's so important because especially as you mentioned in the art world and anything art related. So like even literature for writers, the it could be very elitist. Oh, it totally is. You know, and it's yeah. it's a shame. So I feel like uh, what you guys are doing and, and many others like you, it's so important to provide that space where yeah. um, you don't need to come from a certain background or you don't have to have a certain level of success to be able to showcase your talent yeah i think and, that's crucial and why i felt it was okay amidst conversations of decentralization yeah. why i felt in this particular in uh instance that it was okay to have a sort of centralizing body in this case super fine bring in a sort of in-house nft component right some people might say well wait, you got to kind of like incorporate within their sphere. That's not maybe necessarily what NFTs are about, but, and they're not entirely wrong, but what I would say is Superfine has always been its own, in a way, self-contained ecosystem. Now doing fairs in LA and Seattle, uh, Miami, DC, New York, I'm probably missing some. So they're, they've been around. And their brand is what it is. Their brand is strong. And the guys are great. The guys are not going anywhere. The guys who run this fair, they're, they're, they've always been doxxed, so to speak. Right. You know what I mean? So they're always on it for doing the right thing. And that means a lot to them. So, yeah. you know, are they, you know, David Zwerner and Gagosian, like, and all the prestige and drama and pretensions that come with that? No, they're not. And they know that. And if you want that, go to that. That's one thing I never understood. It's like, if you want all the super expensive blue chip stuff, which mm -hmm. sometimes does, you know, invite uh, a sort of like parallel objective yeah. sense of quality or goodness or greatness, those things are available to you. If you want something more accessible, if you're a regular person, you're not uh, the 1% of the 1% and you want something to go over that couch you know you want a couple pieces for that hallway going into the the foyer or whatever you can walk into superfine and more likely than not find things that you will enjoy and not only that that you can afford and take home right and right. and not only I support uh an artist that may be just starting out right so so that exact ethos is something I want to speak to you about NFTs, right? Because we're going through a weird NFT time right now. It's like a weird- It's exciting. It's exciting. It's so exciting. It, it's exciting, <laughs> but you know, it's weird because yeah. you know, the, the world is crazy and, and we see what, you know, I believe all markets are to some degree speculative. And sure. you know, things are up in the air. And we could talk about how NFTs have are on this roller coaster ride of of context and you know the the utility utilitarian nature of them is, is shifting or going away or coming back. But one thing I want to say about NFTs, and you could do this with art too, but I know in Miami, despite what's popping with NFT NFTs and, and how we're discussing them, there's still a lot of people with a lot of crypto loot to throw around who are interested in supporting artists, right? So let's say before, you know, uh, March, 2021, when, when people first started to know about NFTs, largely through a couple like core characters, like people and yeah. a, a good friend of mine, this guy, Justin Aversano, who was like the first real photographer to, to really get out there and sell. But like, 
before that, you could go to any gallery that's of, of a certain sort of, uh, you know, accessible or emergent price point and support artists, right? And put that, you know, USD fiat currency and support artists you like. What I'm interested in, in Miami especially, is there's a lot of people here with a lot of crypto loot to go around and NFTs can be this, this portal or this token to support people who are even further removed from the regular art world, the traditional right. fine contemporary art world, meaning people who, you know, are completely off the grid or don't even have a chance uh, of, of connecting with a Yale, you know, or some of these other art institutions can engage in a way and be legitimately supported via this particular currency. So what I'm looking at and what I was seeing in the lead up to this fair was a lot of artists, right? Specifically artists, because that's always been my access point. And I saw for years that there were a lot of interesting artists making digital work or, or video work, virtual work, and were struggling to sell these things as art objects, right? Like, you know, in art, we're used to walking away with, with an object, whether it's a two-dimensional painting or a sculpture or some, some sort of thing or right. getting commissioned to do installations, whatever it is. These people making really cool either digital illustrations or like, uh, you know, foraying into virtual reality, they were constantly coming to me going, Kurt, how do we get the word out about this? Not only that, how do I monetize this? How do I do this? So a lot of those artists before the advent of NFTs um, were close to me. I, I had already written about some of their IRL exhibitions and stuff like that. So when they started merging into the NFT land early, they kind of pulled me in as a journalist, as a critic, really, as a, as a guy who interviews artists. Mm -hmm. So they were like, yo, check this out, check this out. So by virtue of these sort of digital art pioneers, so to speak, one of them like Ann Spalter, who created the digital art program at Brown and RISD back in like, I think like the late eighties or the nineties or something like that. Maybe not the late eighties and sorry, but like maybe like the nineties. <laughs> uh, so like, and now Ann Spalter is like, I think she's in Dubai right now, you know, crushing it. Um, so I had interviewed Anne years ago and knew that there was this whole frontier of art where she was in, in some way a major pillar of that entire sort of genre and medium is now crushing it. So she's just one example of someone where it's like, you know, I've curated some of her work, watching her step into that space and maintaining this dialogue with her. Right. I just kind of got pulled in. In the beginning, kind of kicking and screaming. And to some degree, I still sort of maybe have one little foot sort of dangling <laughs> out. But but it was really these artists who were sort of pioneers in that space who were just interested in me checking it out, you know? But but yeah, that last point real fast was th they're crushing it now. Yeah. But as we know, there's a lot of artists who are not making the big PFP projects. I think a lot of people trying to do that have been iced out by these huge ones, right? Mm -hmm. We know what just happened with the purchasing of uh, of uh, the punks from, yeah. from the Board Ape guys, right? But I was seeing on Twitter in the lead up to this fair all these artists who i like who were like mm, you know the one-on-ones that you know the artists making the, their digital work we're not getting the attention we're not getting the love and for me when alex was like hey like we kind of want digital art at this fair so i'm this is i'm gonna throw it back to you in a second but two things number one a space to show digital art yes and and in a cool 
clever curator curatorial way right. right so i think digital art is art and mm -hmm. you can come see it in a really sexy place in person right and buy it via these channels right number one number two if you're a person who's got a little bit of crypto loot to throw around and you want to show up and literally support an artist just come in engage with the artist engage with the work buy the work and maybe you pay that artist rent for the mm -hmm. next month or two exactly. months, or maybe you just like give them a little foothold to enter into the crypto space and maybe build a little wealth. Should we see the stuff go back up? Which I think we will once yeah. once things get settled. I so yeah, I feel like Superfine and this NFT activation is uh, an ecosystem that already didn't give a shit what you think, uh, but is still having a lot of fun. Who is inviting people in to engage with digital art? and potentially support these artists using cryptocurrency. So that's it. You want to come in, you want to support an artist and see right. some digital work, you can come do that. Any other larger conversations, like we're happy to have, like the, the centralized versus decentralized components, mm -hmm. right? But I found that artists want their work to be seen, especially the one-on-one -on -one digital artists. They, they need to stand out. They need to be seen. And getting a bunch of people in a room together that you might not know, introducing you to new collectors, still works for those artists with a capital A. Yeah. Right, because there's artists making art who are using NFTs as a technology to get that art out there. Right, they're not NFT artists; they're artists mm -hmm. making NFTs, and, which is so empowering for them. Yeah, you know, to be able to have another medium for their art to show, to be accessible to other people. I, I think that's it's a it's a no brainer. You know, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it's so cool that you guys provide the physical space, yeah. right? Because yeah. that's, you know, someone who's looking for something to do over the weekend and who wants to, who's an art lover, wants to support. It's not as exciting to sit behind your screen and look at this art. It's right. better to go to something like this yeah. and like hang out with people, yeah. have a good time. And in the process, be exposed yeah. to some awesome art. Yeah. And yeah. and trust me, there's still a lot of beautiful Miami people rolling up in their their fun outfits. Yeah. You know, you have like the really like gorgeous, like sort of Miami women, the very like good looking, good looking tan, polished dudes. But then you also got like a, a lot of young kids running around with, right. you know, getting their crypto vibe on, you know, a little more crusty yeah. in that way. And also I want to mention we uh invited and sort of brought on this design team it's actually um husband wife design team they have two kids um it's called we are nice and easy and they made this nft lounge for us so you come up to the seventh floor of superfine and right to your right is this lounge that looks like a pool it looks like a like a uh, like a community pool and the water is like really like plush like 80s carpet like very Ooh, uh toothy yeah. and stuff and we have screens embedded into the entire installation we have a huge like industrial projector projecting onto the super high concrete roofs of this fair so yeah, so it's amazing. So uh, this couple, uh, we are nice and easy. Who who made this particular installation are there like every day with their kids and inviting their friends and family. And uh, they made these like really cool custom like floaties and and little like tubes and oh, stuff. Nice. So yeah, so, so it's kid friendly. It's as super, well. it's super kid friendly. What's funny is like there's a couple NFTs 
that are like pushing the envelope a little. Not, mm-hmm. By no means nothing, uh, you know, nothing goes past PG-13 right. as far as content. But there are moments like there's one where it's like a decapitated Mickey you know, Ooh. you know what I mean? That like it comes on and, yeah. uh, you know, there was a kid like playing with the thing and mom's like, Ooh, decapitated Mickey. Uh, but that's not going to turn anyone off, you know, like maybe, you know, look away for that one, you know? Right. But, uh, but it is so cool to, uh, to see kids engaged in that way and to have this physical space, to have an art space. Not only that, like some of these long, like sort of like, um, like raft, like floaties, you know, like the long rectangles yeah. you might lay in in a pool. There's like people at the fair, like laying down, like full on adults, like laying on these things. Oh, it's wrong. So, so it's so cool to walk around a fair and see people like really kind of cuddled up and, and hanging out. And also, you know, we would love for you to show up and, and be on site and open up your phone there and engage and buy those NFTs on site. But we also, I like that you can show up and see the work and we have them like on on like a pretty healthy rotation so you might be there and see these nfts on these digital screens on the projector and you might even see a physical companion piece from the same Mm -hmm. artist in a booth so there's multiple artists who um have physical work on site and also have a nft and some of them are companion pieces so what i've been liking is you know people are coming in and maybe they see the nfts and they talk and a couple people that i know brought some like sort of big collectors through and i feel like you don't have to put that pressure that sales pressure on them you can just kind of have them enjoy and then after they've had a couple of drinks and they're in the back of their uber or they're in their you know apartment or hotel room later at night if they're feeling good they can just get on their right. phone right there and buy that NFT, you know, or buy it at their leisure. And the NFTs are going to be up on our site. If they don't sell, they're going to return to the artist, but they're oh, going to okay. be up on our OpenSea account, Superfine OpenSea, mm-hmm. for like another two weeks. So, so there's e- plenty of time. So there's plenty of time. Yeah. So the fair is like, listen, we all know to some degree NFTs are about hyping up these NFTs. And as somebody who's been essentially, Listen, I, I really like my writing. I'm not going to be really self-deprecating about my writing, but to some degree, writing about gallery, traditional gallery exhibitions, like a lot of those articles, like really, really high level art criticism, mm-hmm. you're still kind of doing a commercial for luxury I art items. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So the, the hype, so the hype has always been there. I've I've always been a hype man, largely. Right. You know what I'm saying? So what the fair is, it's just an opportunity for you to connect. Yeah. You know, so. So I'm excited about it. And and I think people like it. I think people are really having a good time. I mean, what's not to like? I know. That's, I think what you guys have built is amazing. And the environment, it just sounds so inviting. It is. And fun and fresh and not pretentious. By the way, are you coming through with the fam? Are you going to come through and check it out? I definitely want to. You better. Yes, yes. And now that I know it's kid friendly, Mm -hmm. because my kids are all about art. They, they love it. They would have a blast. I'll share some photos I took of the NFT lounge and stuff yeah. and kids just having a ball and, and I you'll love, love that idea. That's a nice surprise. Cause I didn't know that. Yeah. That's I, I, obviously I knew there's the NFT component, but I didn't know you guys had done it like that. Yeah. And, and make sure to check out, we are nice and easy. They've done a lot of cool installations and, and build outs and stuff for a bunch of different fairs and activations. They're amazing. And their kids are fabulous and beautiful. They're artists themselves. They actually have NFTs themselves in the activation. Nice that, and easy. That yeah. is so cool. There's a lot, yeah. And it's the first time I've ever been in an art fair where we're seeing NFTs on various screens and then 
you're moving around the fair on the opposite side of the fair, mm -hmm. you might see that same artist with with work that corresponds to that NFT. Mm -hmm. So there's like really like a multi-dimensional conversation happening. Yeah. You know? And I think that helps people to understand why NFTs themselves are art. If yeah. they're able to see the artist right. in person and see other work the artist has, yeah. it's just a different medium. Yeah. Do you feel like people are starting to become more comfortable with the idea of digital art? Who yes, I do think that people are simultaneously not everyone, uh, because there's reasons to be a little weary or uncomfortable mm -hmm. with anything. You know, like yeah. if you're only looking at um, any art as an investment, and you should, because art can be expensive, and it's good that if it's uh, an appreciating asset, and certainly that's. Uh, you know, the financial and economic components of NFTs are huge, right? They're, right. they're like anything that can appreciate and depreciate, right? But so can art. And uh, so what I would say is, and we see this on Twitter and Discord all the time, is like really get stuff you like, get the things that yeah. you really like that really speak to you. And I know for me, like when I'm looking at NFTs, it depends, like I, I might bring a different curatorial eye than you know, what I bring to a, a big New York City blue chip gallery right. and what I see with an emerging young illustrator who's, you know, crushing it at 19, doing kind of like rough hewn figurative drawings of, you know, whatever. Uh, so so I like this idea. I, w I was, uh, you know, in uh, NFT week in New York, uh, some guy was like showing me a, a PFP project that was... Uh, uh, it was like chickens, uh, uh, chickens? Uh, chickens, yeah, chickens dressed uh, in like different clothes. It was like a generative project, right? Barnyard fashionistas, and he showed that me all these. Cool. He showed there, it's cool. These little cartoon chickens, <laughs> yeah. and they're in like different looks and stuff like that. And he showed me, and I just come from like a really big, like you know, pretentious like Chelsea Gallery opening where everybody's like, oh, no, you no, went no. from like two I different. Went, I went from that, and this guy, this guy, <laughs> him and his partner, like uh, he was like a old like Pixar computer graphics guy, not oh, an wow. old guy, but but had been at Pixar for right. a while, he has experience. And she was like just a cool young illustrator, and they teamed up. So we're at this party uh, at the New York City edition on the roof. And I just met this guy and he goes, hey, I'd love to, uh, uh, Josh, was, I'd love to show you these uh, chickens. So he shows me these chickens and he's like, what do you think? And I was like, I like them. And I also like that it doesn't really 100% matter what I think. I like that there's sort of its own language. That's largely with some of the, the PFP stuff. But right. even when we were having conversations with super fine artists artists who have shown with super fine before so like we ha we have three different collections we have the super family collection which is specifically artists who've been a part of super fine previously oh, wow. who are interested in getting into nfts or are already doing nfts and would like to bring that component into their irl fair showing uh sort of circumstances right uh so there's about a hundred super family artists then we have Magic City Heroes, which is really like local Miami artists, right? I think Diana is in our Magic yes, City Heroes. She's, yes, right? she's part Diana Contreras for Yeah, who also, yeah. who also had her own drop and opening on Thursday, the same yes. night as our opening, yes. which we were happy to, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully show a little love. So yeah, one of her NFTs is at 
super fine yes. right now. So the idea is like, there's a lot of artists like that where we want to show that. So when Diana comes there or other people see that, maybe they engage with her one singular piece, but that leads them back to her social media and then perhaps maybe even leads them off site to right. her particular activation or leads them to her collection. So I wanted to have that physical place there to also help promote artists offsite, mm -hmm. you know, uh, which I think is totally okay. And hopefully Diana, I don't know if she's come through the fair already. I, I may have missed she her. She has so. not, but I, all right, so you, I don't Diana, wanna, right. you're, you're all coming through. Don't worry. You're all, you all get tickets. I, was gonna say, I don't want to speak for her, but as of last night, when we had like our, our late night meeting, we said, okay, we're going to try to make it out there Saturday evening or Sunday, sometimes some Sunday. So we're yeah. all going together. You it's going to be a family affair. Yeah, and, and obviously we'll take care of you guys. Make sure you guys get, oh, get through so the door. Oh, you're so kind. Thank yeah. you. So, so yeah, yeah that's, that's it. It's like, uh, and then maybe I should mention the garden. The garden, yes. oh wait, no, let me finish the three collections, right? So it's the super family artists, artists who've shown what's super fine. They haven't gotten into NFTs before, but they've been hearing it. They don't really know. And they were quite happy to have a team in place to kind of hold their hand a little bit. I'm that, sure that must be such a relief. Because if you know how uh, it if is, I'm it an artist stressful. and all of a sudden there's this whole thing that's very cloudy, right? Because at yeah. first it's very hard to understand what's totally. going on. Yeah. And then to have you know a team that says, I'm gonna help yeah. you, I'm gonna hold your hand. Yeah. I think that's yeah. amazing. We hired this uh new-ish agency called CTA, who are like, you know, in New York mm -hmm. and really sort of there uh help it to manage a lot of the behind the scenes, like uh, more sort of, uh, you know, rote, uh, you know, administrative stuff and making sure the wallets are right and kind of- The stuff nobody hands. wants to do. The stuff nobody <laughs> wants to do. And that's something that's important too, is, you know, the guys who run Superfine Art Fair, there is a component and it shifts depending on the different selections of a, a traditional sort of fair model in terms of profit sharing. Right. So like for the super family artists who are really coming through the hand holding system, they're sort of justifying taking a percentage of the sales largely because number one, there's a huge onboarding process for a lot of right. those artists and they're physically showing the space, which comes with all this overhead. But then we have other artists who are coming in who are helping to bring something to the table with us where we've been a little bit more willing to sort of like shift on those percentages to make sure that, uh, you know, if we're not holding their hand and they're coming in guns blazing, that it's not like frivolous, um, uh, like proceed sharing and stuff like that. Cause it was really important to us to make sure like people are getting those back ends, right? That's right. a huge part of the, uh, conversation that we love. And, and we wanted to have it at the fair to, to constantly reinforce that traditional artists should, you know, keep an eye out for uh, maybe uh, getting some of those residual back-end sales with their regular work. You know, like yeah. maybe thinking about using NFTs as smart contracts to get a little money on those secondary sales where to this day, artists working in the fine art sphere, you know, like they, they sell a work, you know, they sell that work for 10 Gs, you know, the gallery takes half, taxes take half of their so half, painful. right? And then, yeah. you know, they pop off, you know, somebody like me comes in, writes an article in Vanity Fair, New York Times, somebody else, some you know, bigger staff writer comes and blows them up. They do another big exhibition and that same piece that sold for 10 G's, sold for 200 G's at Christie's and they get nothing on they that secondary nothing. sale. So yeah. I also like that NFTs uh, are uh, forcing the issue for galleries to just be a little bit more um, 
conscious of how I don't want to say those artists are getting screwed over, but at the same time, I do like how NFTs have kind of put a little pressure on these big auction houses who are of course doing a lot of uh, NFT drops now, but really like these big blue chip galleries and museums who are like seeing all that secondary sort of profit uh, or these collectors and those artists get nothing. And, and, and that can really actually hurt an artist, right? Like in, in a lot of ways. So, so I like that. I like having these components together. What I always say is that through through NFTs, it feels like the we don't we will hopefully be rid of the idea of the starving artist. Yeah, you know, and yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, whether you're an artist or just an art lover, that's so important. Mm-hmm. There's no need in this day and age for artists who are creating with their hands and their soul, yeah, to not be able to put food on the table. It's, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you got to make stuff that people want, right? Yes. Even if you're making food, if your food tastes like junk, <laughs> you, you can't force people to eat it. Exactly. You know, unless they're starving, you know, and I do think people are starved for good art. I think people are really, I know I am. I know Same. like art that actually like moves me emotionally. Like it's been like 40 days and 40 nights in the desert for me yeah. when it comes to that, you know, but why I was so happy to be a part of Superfine is like, not only is there like a fun ethos where everybody's like really inclusive. The two guys who founded the fair are both gay men who are very active in the LGBTQ community, really like organic, uh, diverse selection of artists, right? Like ages, races, et cetera, gender uh, expression, sexual orientation, you know? So uh, actually tonight is the third drop, right? So we had Superfamily, Super Family artist, Magic City Heroes, which was like a lot of like local Miami kind of street art cats types. Where Diana is, right? That was Friday night. And then tonight is the LGBTQ, right? And that, uh, so it's a lot of like uh, queer artists making NFTs. Uh, and that's going to kind of like bleed a little into the garden party. So the garden party is for everybody who's been a right. part of these respective collections. Everybody's shown it super fine. And the public, if they can get tickets, they should come too. It's going to be pretty lit. And then if, if you want, I can tell you about what we're doing at the garden. Unless yes. you've got something else for me. No, no, no. I want to hear everything about the garden party. Because to me, that sounds so cool and fun. Yeah. All right. So real quick, the NFC component at the garden, I brought in this Brooklyn-based company called Terraform. Terraform One. And they do like these like insane, like sustainable design art objects where you actually can like build structures out of completely organic molds, like completely out of organic templates. So they still do like really cool, sexy sculptures. And what's interesting is the Miami Beach Garden, the Botanical Garden is pretty much on site for that design show, which is directly across the street from the main Art Basel Miami Beach art fair, you know, the mm-hmm. main fair. Yeah. So that that landscape, that plot of land carries like an intelligent artistic design uh, sort of vibe, you know. So this company, Terraform, I really wanted to bring a company in that was like legitimately interested in sustainability and executing at a sustainable level. Uh so what they're going to do is we have this artist, Mamoon, who uh, makes these molds, like actual physical molds. Um, it's like uh, he uses like this uh, sustainable sort of material. And he like, cr- they're like uh, little like labyrinths where they have these patterns that are sort of modeled after sacred geometry, right? So it's like oh, a wow. physical mold. It's a physical mold. They're all triangles, probably like 20 something inches, 20, 18 each, each, you know, and uh, you pack them with this like enriched soil and it grows out through these molds. And then you remove the mold and you're left 
with this like amazing, like trippy, like really formidable structure yeah. that you then use to like build out. So it can be a singular, beautiful little art object, or you can actually start stacking these things and build an actual living abode, like a living structure. So we're gonna have 30 unique NFTs that are essentially like digital illustrations of the molds, digital representations that's, of the molds. Cool. So if you buy one of these 30 NFTs, Mamoon and Terraform send you your own your physical mold. Physical. Yeah, so I you get one of, and then you could start building these things out. So you can send these all over the place. So that's gonna be really sick. We're gonna have one of these sexy molds and he's building like, and is that tonight? That's tonight. Yeah. So Mamoon, he's like, I'm in town, you know, and, oh, and he's man. been showing me images of these things. They're so cool. They're really okay, cool. I'm really excited. Yeah. For so that. so I'm, I'm excited that we have this great company, Terraform, and hopefully we can sort of build a relationship where maybe in December mm -hmm. they can really like go big, big. So this is an opportunity for this young guy at Terraform Mamoon, who is like a genius and honestly, super cool. I met him in the East village in New York and immediately I was like, Hey, uh, so yeah. what he was doing? I was like, Oh, I got the garden. I got And he was just the perfect plugin. It was like serendipitous and he's been hustling and Terraform has been so good. If you check out their website, website, Terraform one, you're like, Oh, damn, this stuff is insane. Right. So I know the garden is really excited to, to have them too. And hopefully we can, you know, pun intended, sow the seeds, not only put on a great event and a great experience mm -hmm. here, but sow the seeds for something maybe in December next year where we go like really big and, and do something really magical. So that's going to be great. And we got DJs and stuff, yeah. you know, it's going to be cool. And, oh, that sounds so much yeah. fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and then tomorrow, it's- Tomorrow is just like- events tomorrow? Uh, First of all, yes, check the website, super fine art fair, all the info. I, I think there is something, there isn't any like strategic NFT drop. What I would like Sunday to be is like a full day situation where everybody just gets to like get it in, right. in a hopefully somewhat sort of relaxing way. So it's like if people haven't come through or, you know, a collector came by, was interested, wants to see it again. I think Sunday is that day of just like, you know, easy fun. Yeah, easy fun. Yeah. But like, let's just all appreciate this last day. I think that I might be missing like a strategic component. Right. As you can tell, like my attention and really my responsibilities largely uh, as far as curation uh, kind of end with the garden. You know, and then Sunday yeah. I finally get to like exhale and chill out. You and know? relax, take yeah. it all in. And I shouldn't go to the beach anymore because I've been going every day and getting red. <laughs> people but people told me last night, they're like, dude, nobody goes to the beach like midday. Like we don't do that. I'm like, what are you talking about? The beach was packed. Like, but I've two days ago I was like a like a tomato, you know. But oh, Sunday I might be man. at the beach for a little bit again once I once I cool down. Right. Yeah. So what do you think is like the biggest difference between Miami art and well, the rest of the country? Well, what, what I like and where I've loosened up, here's my thing is context for me is really important. Mm -hmm. I know we live in an age where like context means nothing to people anymore. You know, that's a bit hyperbolic, but context means everything to me. And context is yeah. ultimately how we operate as human beings. If, con if context meant nothing, civilization would crumble. What do you mean by that? What, wait, wait, did you mean this? Did you mean that? Or like, and then also where something exists is really important. So Fourth of July, 2020, I was up in uh, Cape, Cape Cod uh, in Provincetown mm -hmm. where uh, an artist friend of mine, Natalie White, who's a very cool like activist artist, had a residency up there. So she's like, come, come visit me during this residency. And she was making this really amazing work and kind of in her like COVID quarantine, it was really cool, really subtle. She was like doing these bleach paintings that I thought were really interesting. And, uh, 
but you know, we would walk into town. It's 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 Cape Cod or whatever, you know, Provincetown. And so little seafaring cottages and stuff. And it's a lot of paintings of boats and docks and birds and right. and, and whales <laughs> and, and things and in these cute little galleries. And if I'm using the same lens or looking through the same uh, critical prism that I use to look at like whatever, you know, Gagosian's up to or whatever special uh, exhibition the Met or MoMA is putting on or or any of those like great, like big mid-tier galleries where I think that a lot of great stuff's happening. When I'm there, when I'm in like those great galleries, like it's a few like really solid, uh, you know, Lower East Side, East Village galleries, Couple solid Brooklyn uh, galleries and institutions, some uptown stuff, but really like those big megalithic Chelsea galleries. Like I'm going in there, uh, like ruthless, you know. And and e even lately, I've learned that I've probably had to bring it down as as conversations about representation and inclusion and right. giving other people a leg up. And it's allowed me to enter back into super fun in a way where it's like relax, relax. And not only that, NFTs have helped me relax. As far really? as curation, well, like what I was seeing in NFTs to begin with That's is interesting. Well, what I realized is like I was seeing a lot of like figurative illustration work do really well as mm. NFTs, right? Where early on, a lot of the conversations about representation in terms of who's in space doing stuff, and then also representation of what we're seeing in the work itself. It's often those two things are a parallel conversation that, especially me and all my identifiers, there's sometimes where it's like number one, maybe shush, all right, <laughs> and then like hey, because these these people are getting paid. I, I think we've entered into such a sort of vo volatile space economically and, and and politically and all this kind of stuff that, like, I just saw this guy who's like one of the bigger critics, Jerry Saltz, put out uh, a tweet the other day. He goes, "How about this? I want all artists to make money. The 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 great." artists making great art the good artists making good artists uh, good art and the bad artists even making bad art i want them all to make money congratulations that's how you're a critic right so what he was saying there was he's able to discern objectively right and this is what we want from critics who who we value as critics and whether you know artists love to say i guess we need critics sort of facetiously it's like we do we like critics yeah. right you know like i do like, you know, I go see a movie or I go, this is, I like, I usually after I'm, I'm going through everything. I want to read what everybody thinks about it. It's just the way I am. Yeah. But I think critics play a role, but I do think that there are certain situations where if we're talking about people being seen, if we're talking about people getting resources and feeling like they're a part of these institutional uh, structures and complexes where they've previously felt excluded and maybe they don't have that leg up and, you know, maybe they haven't had that time to refine their skill sets or really sort of uh, meet a place of like real like layered gravitas or something but but it's time to to sort of like change the sort of landscape of those institutions in those situations it's like yo chill like because if you move into those spaces i feel like or felt like the gloves are off right but now I've learned to like, just kind of like chill out a little bit. So anyway, like Miami, is there a Miami art aesthetic? There is just like Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. Like I go up to Cape Cod, you're gonna see some seagulls and yeah. some sailboats, yeah. you know what I mean? And that's cool. Cause that does well up there. 
you know, or sometimes I go out to like East Hampton and some of the stuff's like a little like more poppy or sexy and a little some of that same kind of thing where maybe it's more like landscape work on plein air kind of stuff. Or, you know, if I go out to L.A. now, there's a very particular kind of thing. It's like sort of like more colorful abstraction and like, you know, like post post street photography and maybe a little more floral, a little bit lighter. There was a big migration uh, pre-COVID of New York gallerists who went to LA because they saw things getting really political, right? Right, where they were like, hey, if if we're not making artwork that's in dialogue with, uh, you know, relevant discussions regarding identity politics, like if you're not really doing that in New York where that's important to New York artists and New York institutions currently, like, this gentleman at uh, the New Yorker a couple of years ago said race is the cause and condition for the resetting of the art world. Um, so I think he was largely true. And we've sort of seen that. And hmm. so so I think New York especially is really dealing with uh, the realities of, of uh, you know, the, the, the racial matrix of people there and who's being seen, who's being shown. Right. So what I'm seeing now is these sort of little ecosystems these sort of like like movements operating in their like like site specific place site specific being certain cities certain movements so depending on where i am depending on what i'm engaged with like recently there was an outsider art fair in the city right Mm -hmm. outsider artist being you know which is a term that's like a little taboo outsider yeah you know uh like experiential artists or uh you know there's a lot of other terms for it but these are people who haven't gone to yale and didn't get their uh you know obligated mfa or something like that who are doing really crazy stuff so when i'm walking through the outsider art fair i'm expecting to see things I haven't seen before, probably from people who, you know, no offense, but a lot of them are like total wackos, which is something I like. You know what I mean? I don't want my artists to always be so buttoned up and and nerdy and dorky and like, you know, everything has a citation, you know, it's like. And again, saying the same things over and over. I want somebody who thinks, you know, Archangel Gabriel is speaking to them through their like toilet, you know, so they make the toilet angels. You know what I mean? Like, give me that, you know, and we can have a discussion of whether or not that's good or bad. But largely it's based on the context. Right. Right. So to me, context is everything. When I'm moving through Superfine and, you know, somebody goes, I don't really know about that painting. Maybe I can do that. And well, it's like, well, number one, are are you right? Which is the thing we always see. And we see that at the highest blue chip level. But like if I was curating for like the big booths at Art Basel Miami Beach, which cost, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars to show for a week, you better have work in there that can command a price point that actually leads to a profit, leads to a successful sale. So what does that mean? That means that's an artist who has probably been around, has probably worked to get to that price point, is probably making some pretty objectively great work. Right. You know? So I believe in that. I believe work has an objective merit and maybe we can play this game that that I like where I, I, I test this out, where I invite people to impose their own metric of objective versus subjective quality. We can play that in a minute. How are you I'm doing? Down. I'm talking so I'm much. Down. You getting tired? I tire no, people out. <laughs> never. I'm taking it all are in. Are we good? Are we good? Yes. Because cool. I mean, obviously I love art and uh, getting involved, um, you know, into the NFT world and uh, representing an artist like Diana, that this to me is, uh, I could talk about this with you all day. Yeah. 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 Um, I, so like Diana's a good, like why we were happy to have her there right. is I think we've all moved into a place where it's like, it's all right. 
You know, yeah. it's, it's okay if what you're doing is what you're doing. And if people dig it, great. If they don't, fine. But I think it's also largely the responsibility and the prerogative of certain spaces to be like, I mean, you're not really great for us. Or maybe you're better over here. Or maybe this right. ain't a good luck. But like Diana, for instance, like I posted, uh, I think it was a piece with the curly hair. Was that her? Uh, I don't know. Like the, a little coffee the, cup. The, yes. Her? Yes. And that. Actually, I had them here till like two days ago. You would have seen it in person. And it was animated too. The steam coming up. Yeah. Out of the, all right. So aesthetically, that hand, right? It's not like photorealism, right? She's not rendering this young woman to death. But what I liked about it, and a lot of people are making art that like has maybe like a street art graffiti vibe mm -hmm. as like a backdrop in the, in, in the, the background or something like that young women sort of expressing themselves through these avatars right right and and sort of like a loose sort of sketch right it's not about like nailing every detail perfectly right so certain galleries or something might be like hey maybe that's that doesn't fly here we're not really right. but I thought as like an animated piece, that that particular piece with the coffee cup and this girl, her hair was so trippy because it yeah. was animated. The hair, her curly, beautiful purple curly hair right. swirling and trippy and holding this coffee cup with the steam coming out. And she nailed the skin. Her skin was so, it, you know. It's like it was, glowy. It was glowy. Yeah. And she was like sort of sexy. And I, I remember the hand the holding the coffee mug mm -hmm. was rendered in a way that I like that I thought succeeded as like painterly figuration, which is like, you're not spending all day like getting every little detail, but you're making yeah. sure that it works and it's right. So I thought just that piece, if it's a painting on the wall, I might go cool. But mm -hmm. as an NFT, as an animated NFT, and I share that. And so many people are like, oh, cool, right? Because you know, we all just kind yeah. of grab that cuppy, uh, coffee, uh, cup of coffee and sort of vibe with the steam. And right. I thought it was sexy. I thought it was fun. So within that context, the context of knowing her, what she's creating, mm -hmm. where that piece could live or how it's going to live, right. I, I love it for what it is. Like for what it is, great. Now you take that piece and you put it over there, put it over there, the context may shift. Um, right, exactly. And, and it's a valid conversation to be like, mm, that doesn't really belong here. Now, what does that mean? It's not necessarily an insult to the creator, right? Like we're not saying you're not welcome in this space. It's a conversation about whether or not this work uh, is where it needs to be for that institution to be successful, for the work itself to be successful, where it's a win-win for everybody. So I think curatorial types like myself, uh, are often put in place to navigate these otherwise difficult conversations, right? Because right. I think, you know, women, yeah. uh, gay people, uh, uh, black people, people of color in general, people on the larger intersectional spectrum have largely felt excluded, right? They want to get down, right? So it's like, what I've been trying to navigate as like a psychopathic critic sometimes <laughs> is like, can, so like, Here's a good example. I want to shout out one of the artists in Superfine. There's this uh, this person. I don't want to shout him out too much. It's cool because he he's been pretty anonymous, but he's at the fair. And, oh, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, and it's it's cool if I say he. I think it's been out there that he's a he, uh, but he goes by Seven Souls Deep. And right at the beginning of, of of the crazy like March 2020 quarantine, when was that? Like ten years ago when that started? How, how many years? An ago eternity was that? ago. Is, is it ten years ago? Is it last week? I don't know. Time is relative, right? <laughs> yeah. But at the beginning of that, 
I was living in uh in in Williamsburg in Brooklyn and uh I wasn't like really in like trendy epicenter. I was in like a little more like, you know, near the highway kind of yeah. vibe, you know, like and there was a period when we were like in legit lockdown where the only thing you were allowed to do is like go for a walk, you know? And I finally learned how to like do that again after like years of living in the city of like juggernaut werewolf from A to B. I kind of like learned how to take a walk again and and slow down and find that lower gear and these long, meandering, boring, slightly depressed walks, right? During during quarantine. And very early on, I discovered the work of this street artist who was like sort of anonymous up to that point who was writing these little like phrases these little like poetic aphorisms and the first one i think has become pretty iconic i don't know if you've seen it uh but it's just uh can we still fall in love this summer it's just a little line like a little prompt like yeah. a question prompt seven souls deep and I was in this relationship for six years with this actress uh, and it was intense and it was cool. And we broke up um, in early November, 2019. Oh, so right I, I went in right before. So I went into COVID single, yeah. you know, so. Not just single, but fresh off a of breakup. Not just single. Thank you. The, it's not fresh just off a of breakup. No, it, it was it's, real. I it's went, rough. You know, it was rough. So I went in and maybe rough for her too. Like, so, uh, so uh, by March, you're in it. And I start seeing these, these, I see, can we still fall in love this summer? And I felt like I like had had that in my own subconscious or maybe just, just in me, maybe not that deep. Maybe it was right there. And I see this, can we still fall in love this summer? And I was like, damn, I had that same question, you know? So as like the months were progressing and I had to move, uh, by September, uh, 2020, by September that that year I had to get out and I, I ended up moving to the city. But uh, every couple of months, seven souls deep, whoever this was, maybe it was a couple people, a woman, right. man, transport, I have no idea. I didn't know who they were, but every like month they would drop like a new jam. They would drop like a new little phrase, like right on the street, on a wall. And it was always like, not only right where I was at, but like a little ahead where I felt like I was like forensically like chasing this street artist, which is something I've done throughout the years. I've interviewed many street artists throughout the years. And I'm, I'm always, uh, and not only that during, uh, during quarantine with slowing down, I also became more observant because when you slow mm -hmm. down, you, yeah. you start to take things in. And I was too observant where I had to get out of that neighborhood. I, you know, I could tell you every like nook and cranny. It was like, <laughs> I, now I, I've seen it all. I got to get out. You were done. But anyway, the seven souls deep, was just killing it. And, you know, I'm starting to date again and I'm kicking it around the neighborhood, you know, like, and I would come across these new things and it was always an opportunity either for me alone to like reassess or if I was like on a date or something, it was like right there. And it would be like this opportunity for me to like have a conversation. Uh, so I just kind of like fell in love with this work and I hadn't really seen a street art piece that was like so deeply connecting with me and also, it was romantic. You could tell like, yeah. like this person was like heartbroken or yearning or something. And so there was like a hallmark component, but it was also like gritty and street. I was like, who is this person who's like so street and like so sensitive, right? And I was like, so it, it straddled this line that I like where it's like, you're probably tough, you're tough, but it's like, it's okay to be sensitive. And I felt like this is what this artist was doing. So one day I'm on this date and I'm kicking it around Williamsburg and in Brooklyn. And I see this piece and I see that the paint is like still dripping on this thing. So I go up, I go finished. up, he like just hit it. 
right? So I, I take a photo, but I was like, I was like, where are you at? Like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm coming for you, you know? And uh, I got a reply. He was like, ha ha ha. He's like, yeah, yeah, I saw you on my tail, you know? And he knew I was a journalist. That is so cool. So, uh, so he goes, uh, he's like, well, he's like, I, I know you. I know you're writing. I know you've written about a lot of street artists, like curated some stuff. He's like, I'm, I might be down to meet, you know? So I'm like, oh shit, when? He's like, tonight at midnight. And he's like, then I'm- At midnight? I'm, uh, he goes, meet me at like one of the baseball fields. This sounds like a movie. So, so yeah, so I say goodbye to the, the date and I kind of like linger in the neighborhood for a little bit. And you know, the, the, the neighborhood kind of quiets down and I'm like loitering in this, this park, like by the dugout of this baseball field and Seven Souls Deep just comes rolling out of like rolling oh out of nowhere and, so exciting. and it was so cool it was so cool so anyway seven souls deep is at the fair we had um we had like this one sort of like booth area that we really didn't know what to do and i knew he was down in miami and i knew he was making nfts so seven souls deep has um an nft of like a mirror and then he actually has the physical mirror where he's hit the mirror. And last night it just sold oh, for like four Gs. He just sold this mirror piece for four Gs. And now he's bringing a, a new one in today. And he might, we might even have him do one in the garden. That's and I'm pretty sure amazing. he's been, a, well, been around. Well, congratulations to him he's, and to you. Yeah, yeah. But but what's crazy is uh, there was a point where he told me at the end of the first night, he's like, you know, he's like, he's like, man, you know, like, I'm not really like used to like interacting with people. But he's like, and I always knew that he was so great with people so great with me and he's like suave you know he's suave and he's sensitive and he's smart and he's great with people okay, i want to meet him now he's cool he's cool and <laughs> watching him on open night even watching him last night people love and engaging with him so he's still kind of like you know he's still kind of yeah. cool i don't think he's like you know taking like a bunch of photos with people but he's crushing it he's doing really well i think the nft sold you know what I, mean? I think we just put like a new one up there so so he's doing great you know, and he was, he was grateful too. He was like, you know, cause I, I don't try to push everyone into the spotlight necessarily, right. but for him, I was like, come on, come on in. So it's crazy. Like his mirror piece over here. And then on the other side of the fair and the NFT lounge, like projected onto the ceiling. And so people are moving around this, this conversation of, of, of interface and, and mirrors and stuff like right. that. So, so just a guy rolling up and, and, and present and, and, these various capacities. He's actually outside. He's hitting the street. Don't tell him. Don't tell Popo. But yeah, you know, he's yeah. He's at the fair itself. He's doing NFTs, and he'll probably be at the garden. So I really like that. I'm in a place where I've had these like sort of personal connections, and right. I, I'm a fan myself. And I'm in a position where I could be like, "Yo, it comes full circle." It comes full circle. Yeah. So that's just, that's just one instance. And at the larger fair and everything there's probably like dozens of stories like that where i can take you through and say hey yo i did this or i wrote this or did that we met here we did this blah 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 yeah. you know so it's special for me we and might ask you to be can you be like our personal tour guide i would love to <laughs> i would absolutely yeah that would be so fun yeah. to get all this behind the scenes that's so cool yeah um, yeah yeah so so yeah so if you can get to the garden tonight, it's going to be fun. The music's going to be great. Yeah. It's going to, you know, we have a, uh, like a vodka sponsor. Um, 
and the garden's sexy. I don't want to jinx it, but like, it's a little dry. We need a little rain. I visited yesterday, but I was like, oh, like, it can't rain because we've got this out outdoor <laughs> fair. You know, so I was like, oh, what can we do? But uh, it's going to be sweet. And I know all the artists and, and people who've moved through the actual physical fair are really going to have a great time at this garden. And it's going to be a little bit of a like sort of tropical scavenger hunt. Like we're going to invite people to kind of move around a little bit. It's not like That's, big yeah. installations. We were thinking about bringing in screens and installing them over like the pond and getting crazy. And it was like, we can't really have a legitimate conversation about sustainability mm -hmm. when I'm running like, you know, like uh, four inch thick uh, yeah. cables and extension cords to this place and crunching down. And uh, we aren't using uh, completely sustainable uh, currency. We're using ETH, like all our mm -hmm. NFTs are moving through ETH. But uh, Terraform uh, is doing uh, all the proper carbon offsets, tree planting, carbon removal, and stuff like that. So we're making sure that those 30 NFTs, to the best of our ability, and perhaps even more so, uh, have a sort of sustainable component with carbon offsets and tree planting, right? So That's, it is truly, I really like a truly sustainable event. And we really invite people to get these 30 pieces. I've already heard of people saying, can I get all of them? I want to build them all. I'm like, all you, all you need is one mold. You know, he's like, wait, I want them all. I was like, uh, and each NFT is a little different because each mold is a little it's different. A little the different. NFT, even though there are all these triangles, the NFT corresponds to that mold. So you can get a very unique mold too and build these really beautiful things. And uh, I'll share some photos of the lounge and the thing and yes. stuff like that. Maybe you can share all that stuff. But uh, the mold itself looks so cool. It's just like, what is this art object? What is this thing? Right. It's all sinewy and beautiful. And we'll probably position that one piece somewhere centrally in the yeah. garden. And it'll be like this little mantle piece, this little centerpiece. And, uh, Hopefully people sort of revolve around it and, you know, cele celebrate this object, you know. So Mamoon just landed in the city today. He's like, Kurt, what's going on? I was like, oh, don't worry. We'll work it out. It'll oh, my gosh. That's so, so exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm so happy to be in, in Miami, you know, like New York, it took a hit. It took a little COVID hit. Yeah. The city that never sleeps that now, now takes naps. You know, it goes to bed early sometimes now. You know, it's like, yeah. it's got a long day tomorrow. It goes to sleep at midnight, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, it went into a coma for a little while. And it's not 100% the same city. Did you stay at, in New York throughout the... I made... I didn't go anywhere internationally, but I did make a couple little moves that I felt were safe yeah, and cause... right. But, but as I was approaching moving out of that Brooklyn apartment... September 2020, I did weigh potentially moving somewhere else, but I'm like a New Yorker, you know? And in fact, I have a buddy down here who's going to New York when I'm supposed to fly back. And he's like, dude, stay in Miami. Like you have my place, stay in my place. A week goes by, no matter where I am, I don't care where I am. I don't care how decadent and luxurious. Yeah. I miss like my bodega guys, you know, right. like I, I, you know, I miss like that iced coffee, You're you know, I, you know, I miss like those like scuzzy New York OGs who, you, you know what I mean? Like it, it's in me and it's, it's weird because, you know, everybody knows New York has like a Stockholm syndrome, love, hate kind of thing. Yeah. But I really doubled down on my New Yorkerness um, by like, like mid-August 2020. And also the space I have... I wanted to have that New York place because I knew so many other people were making a different decision to mm. kind of go nomad and go, oh, I'm going to be in Tulum. I'm going to be here. I'm going to live with my parents or my grandma or whatever, whatever mm. they had to do. I felt like I was in a position to have a place 
that could be a sort of like sanctuary or way station for a lot of people who are like on the move or not like completely oh, settled. That's nice. So, so yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm a New Yorker. This is my home. This is who I am. I can go places. I can come back, but that's my home base. And it's like in my DNA. It's like who I am. Yeah. I'm a New Yorker. That's you exciting. Know? Let me tell you something there. Like since I've been in Miami, there's so many things I love about it, but it's not fast enough for me. You no, know, everything no, it's about a, it's it. a different world and up there. I'm just like, hurry up. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. You guys lead a very different life than <laughs> you know, we do down here. I've chilled yeah. a little since I've been down here over the course since Tuesday. I, I've come down a little, yeah. but like even driving here, I'm like, you know, we have some na neighbors that are New Yorkers. Like they recently came down um, and did the move. And that was one of the things that they were they had comments on, which is like. Miami's fast, but it's not. That's like the one thing they still need to get used to. Yeah. Like we're we're not really. Yeah. Now. I'm just like you'll find me. It at like only a restaurant. feels like, fast in rush hour. <laughs> like. Yeah. Every once in a while, you see somebody go by in like a like a Lambo or something, where you're like, "Well, that's fast," you know. Yeah. But, but most of the time, like. You know, I walk fast. I talk fast. I, I'm I'm a little mean sometimes. Like to me, I don't know that. Like, uh, you know, like so. Yeah, I'm I'm adjusting a little down here, and I like it. And so when I get back to New, to New York, I bring bring that vibe, bring maybe that Miami vibe or whatever other vibe. A little I try balance. To, I try to bring it back, you know. But but like I miss I miss you know I need to get like an ice cream a block away like a mm -hmm. Haagen-Dazs pint at 3 a.m. I need to be able to do that and you know if I can't do that your city fails you know yeah, uh, you know it's true but I gotta but I gotta be real about New York like it ain't I don't know if it's trying to pretend it's what it was and it's still a lot of the bones are the same it's still a lot of arts and culture and vibe and all that kind of stuff but uh a lot of things uh are not what they used to be you know yeah. so sometimes that's tough you know, but I'm hoping this spring. Well, a lot of people weren't able to handle that such a big change, and that's when they left. Oh, I yeah, yeah, you know? and of course their their choice, their prerogative to to right, to right, roll right. out. You know, and there also was the thing that was kind of nice about the city being a little quiet. Like when For I was sure. mo moving into the city, I was like going to look at this space. And by the way, I feel really lucky to be in a position to even do that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And I, I know there's, you know, privileged components to this, even though it's like some real hustle and moments right. of that stuff, you know? I mean, you work hard. Yeah. So. But I saw like when I moved into when I moved into the city, uh, like the last day of August, wake up September 1st and I looked out my window uh, and they were like the block was like aligned with U-Hauls lined with U-Hauls of people moving out wow. of the city yeah. and it was it was like people who had clearly been embedded there like they're like grandmas like yeah, on wall, like, like leaving and I was like holy shit did I just make the worst decision moving yeah. in here and, and it's funny I was telling people I was like, either it's the best time to move into the city or the worst time to move into the city, Manhattan <laughs> specifically. And I was thinking, that's exactly the opening line, really, of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best oh of times. God, it was the worst so of times. Right. And I was like, well, we're living in this uh, Dickensian uh, sort of landscape where we're, we're struggling to sort of reconcile these like all these like crazy binaries in life, right. all these things that seem so opposed. And what we know, the true the true answer is they are it's both and one and sort of simultaneously. So again, like here we are once more struggling with 
late stage capitalism, what is money, what is currency, what is commodity, are we commodities, are we constantly being more and more transparently commodified by, by you know, the military industrial complex, the pharmaceutical industrial complex, the, yeah. the prison industrial complex, the art industrial complex, are we commodities, are we being commodified? Has this always been part of the story of capitalism in the United States, especially like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm I'm seeing a lot of reflections. Who's getting paid? Yeah. Who's getting paid this time around? That's different. But what we're serving up, a lot of it looks really familiar. And, you know, I, I think we're at a place right now where, you know, we have to be aware we have to be aware of these machines and and how these things are held up. And, you know, when I talk about Dickens, we're talking about like early industrialization and the ramifications of that, you know, and we're there again, you know, it just seems like the human experience is recyclable, right? It's like, it's all the same thing. Yeah. Maybe a different set of circumstances, but it's, it's all the same thing. Same shit, different day. Yeah. Seriously. A little sprinkle of flavor. And if we just, you know, Maybe go back to, as you and I were saying uh, in our private conversation, revisit some of these books, this literature or art that can kind of remind us, you know, we've been here before. Yeah. Um, So let's figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) Or if we sense something returning, if we sense a certain thing returning. Right. We have to acknowledge what the circumstances were that brought us to that previous place. So if, if we're taking those steps that could potentially bring us to a potentially catastrophic place, we need to actively look back and go, are these tropes repeating? And if so, why are, why are we walking this path? You know, or, you know, is it like, uh, you know, are we using the same tools and methods that, uh, you know, were used against us primarily in the past, now we're, we're using again, or, you know, so we just have to be really careful, but, Ultimately, I think we have to really be honest with each other. And then largely, more so than ever, you know, we have to be aware that we're really a global species and global citizens, right? This doesn't take away from the realities of our political identities, especially in America, right? Like, like our bodies and our identifiers are significant to how we engage with the world day to day. And some people more so than others, right? This is like what, what woke is. Right. Like woke is being aware how your identifiers are relevant moving through this this political landscape. Right. And how there's obstacles for some people more so than others based on these identifiers. Right. But I think after covid, especially where we went through this, this like sort of like cultural singularity of sort of like peak awareness regarding that. We're obviously moving into now this 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 sort of lower dimensional but considerably more intense, complex global discussion about who we are as massive tribes, mass, massive nation states, first world powers, and it would behoove us as a species to to really get our shit together and connect. And and if to to bring it back around, still to this day, I think art is the best look for doing that. And and let me give a shout out to NFTs too. Um, Nadia from Pussy Riot, this young woman who was imprisoned in a Siberian jail by Putin for doing like a protest performance on like the like inside of like a church in Russia, thrown into this this, you know, fucking gulag or whatever the hell she was thrown into gets out since the quote unquote special military operation began um, in Ukraine. 
through her DAO, this like Ukrainian DAO, and just through her own network and her own badassery, created uh, a series of NFTs, all of the uh, Ukrainian flag, uh, specifically not bringing in her unique artistic aesthetic. No one, no one's bringing in their, you know, right. their language. I think in the course of like a day, she raised 400,000. I think now it's somewhere between like seven or 10 million, maybe more. So over the course of a week, this girl who spent two years in jail has gone around to become quite the feminist activist in, in many other realms. Early crypto adopter saw the value of crypto. Um, just put, uh, you know, $10 million essentially in the pocket, directly in the pocket with zero obstacles of the Ukrainian army. I mean, like just incredible. So it's showing the utilitarian function, not only of crypto, but of NFTs to be these tools, to be these tokens, mm -hmm. to actually do something really impactful glo globally. And to me, Nadia is an artist first and foremost, where she took her own sort of aesthetic vision, her own artistic vision, whatever that is, and put it to the side and used this technology, used NFTs, right? You know, a week ago, you know, people were like, yeah, NFTs, is it over? Is it dead? And maybe in certain ways, right, as this yeah. thing's evolving, but they just were used to raise $10 million without any government, you know, tomfoolery and, uh, you know, usurping of those funds, right? Not to get too political, but like. No, you're 100% right. You know, so these, I mean, these, it's, these it's tools. A tool and yeah. what it ends up being used for, it's up to us. That's right. You know? That's right. So we can make fun of it and be like, oh, you're so stupid. You bought something you can't yeah. take home with you or whatever. Or actually think about the components that make up this thing and how we can use it to our advantage. Right. And, you know, right on the heels of Nadia raising all this money for Ukraine, which was sort of a global story, it raised the question of, well, if we're imposing all these sanctions on Russia, are they going to be able to get a bunch of crypto pumped through and stuff like that? And then the United States, Biden just imposed uh, talks of establishing legislation. It's not actually the physical le right. legislation yet, but talking that they're going to have research, you know, firms come in and see what's going on. And some people like at the big exchange companies like Gemini are bullish about that. In fact, Bitcoin skyrocketed up pretty dramatically for a, a couple days after the announcement. But then there's a part of me also that, you know, no matter what you think of those like crazy Canadian truckers, and I'm sure some of them, you know, their values are sus, but I would also say there's probably a component where they're probably just hardworking blue collar people who feel like they're getting screwed over in different ways. Right. And, I, and honestly, I hear them. There are a lot of things over the last couple of years. I was like, this is fucking bullshit. Yeah. And certainly as we're coming out of this now, we're looking back at a lot of these mandates and a lot of these and things. And we see that. And we're, and, and we're like, this is this, a lot of the shit was nonsense. So, yeah. so yeah, people were dying. Lives were lost. But it's like. We can have legitimate, intelligent, logical conversations about like the efficacy of of certain things or whether or not we need this or not need this without dismissing each other completely. But yeah. but so, yeah, when these truckers were doing their things, uh, doing their thing, uh, the leaders of that particular movement, again, whether you agree with what they were up to or not, and, and I think there's, you know, points to be made on both sides of mm -hmm. that debate. Uh, what is true is a lot of money was sent to a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for these truckers, which the Canadian government 
completely usurped. They just they just freeze. That was crazy. Do you remember that? Yeah, so that and then they like bad. redirected it to to organizations that they felt were appropriate. Yeah, how convenient. Right. I mean, it's just straight up stealing. And I think they ended up giving a lot of the people who donated their money back. I think some of the people didn't get their money back. I'm not 100 sure. Like people got to kind of look into that. But the reality is, is a major government uh, just decided it was okay to take money away from people who felt their their money was going to a play, to a reasonable destination it didn't get there so we just saw recently that that under whatever pretense or context the government whatever government that will take your money they'll freeze your bank account they'll 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 negate uh the 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 validity of your fundraising campaign they will take that money if they disagree with you so literally right on the heels of that as once this war kicks up we see nadia sending money directly in fact zelensky put out like a tweet with the his his wallet uh ids uh that his bitcoin cool. wallet and his eth wallet he just put them out in a tweet you know what i mean so we're at the point where it's like yo here's the wallet address like send me the money and I mean, just Nadia is like 10 million. I, like the the cumulative fundraising for that effort has to be in the hundreds of millions at this point. And my last point about that is, and I know I've been having these conversations behind the scenes with a lot of these movers and shakers is where I would imagine that some of this legislation here in the States is largely to make sure that the established institutions and our established political cartels the gop and the dnc are extremely nervous about yeah. the amount of money that can be raised quickly with no centralization and little grubby hands being put on it that i would imagine that's largely also why we're seeing the united states government act the way they are so i'm sure they'll talk a big game i'm sure some regulations a good look certainly there's a lot of scammy shit going on in, in the nft world and the crypto world there's a lot of people pulling rugs but and they've proven their scammy shit everywhere yeah yeah you know yeah i get it i get so it oh yeah it, in traditional realms too right the 2008 that, financial that's what, I mean. Horrible. that's what i mean no like, i get it yeah the hypocrisy is real the, yeah. exactly that's the word i was looking for the hypocrisy because it's there's no safety net you know um so yeah. they're asking people to give up all these rights in quotes and nothing in return it, nothing yeah right it's like it's still what? well yeah i think you know what we saw you post george floyd Brianna, Black Lives Matter, a, a real sort of revolutionary spirit. And I think a shift again, like culture. I think we went through it. Like, I don't know if you know Curse Vile. It talks about like a biomechanical technological singularity, maybe down the road as it, AI merges with human consciousness right. or something. But on the road to that, as everything's accelerating, technology and even culture and the way we process these things are exponentially accelerating. Um, I do think we move through a cultural singularity. Um, but, you know, I do think that there's also something tenuous about civilization right now. And we have to be really smart and careful about how we navigate into this next chapter. It's very obvious to me we're moving into this next place. Yeah. And I would hope that looking at a lot of the tomfoolery of our political institutions, our financial institutions, our media, as they become more and more consolidated and they work together to support each other. It's very obvious to me. And by the way, like I often find people who are like, want to talk to me about like how these big media companies work. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I've written for the New York Times and Vanity Fair and Forbes and Architectural Digest and the list goes on and on. 
you know, like my parents sometimes try to be like, Kurt, let me tell you about the New York Times. I'm like, have you contributed to them a dozen times over? Like, uh, do you know what it's like dealing with New York Times editors and yeah. moving through their payroll and you, and dealing with editorial mandates saying, well, Kurt, you know, we're interested in covering this, blah, 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 blah. You know, and uh, even recently with Nadia, I'm not going to tell you who the publication is, but they were like, um, maybe we can find an angle that has less to do with Ukraine. I'm like, it's the entire story. You're trying to swerve away from Ukraine. Like, so what you realize in the type of journalist I am is like, I'm not afraid to bite the hand that feeds, you know, like for me. So you mean you're a true journalist, right? So, you know, for me, follow the money, follow the money used to mean follow the bullshit via the money and see who right. the culprit is. Right. Follow the money now is like, what do I have to say and do to keep this job and get paid? So yeah. a lot of the people who are the big talking heads or, you know, the, the people at these institutions are are really not as revolutionary as they like to think they are. They're really uh, they're really just uh, following a sort of corporate culture that allows them to climb a corporate ladder to accumulate greater power and resources. And to some degree, we all play this game in capitalistic spheres. The question is, is what are you compromising to do that? And anytime I've started to make my way up uh, at some of these publications, Forbes, New York Times or something, you hit this wall where you see their own integrity being questioned, right? So as a young journalist, especially one if you're curating shows and you're dabbling and you're connected to artists and stuff like that, maintaining that integrity can be tough, right? Yeah. And maintaining your integrity as a critic can be tough, right? Because I like nice dinners and parties and I want art people to like me, but there are moments where I'm like, I'm gonna say what I think is right and you're welcome to disagree with me, but I, I'm certainly not gonna like silence myself to make sure like I get invited to that VIP dinner or you think I'm a nice person or whatever, I'm gonna say what's up, you know? And what I found is as you start to really move up the ladder and I often do that quickly at a lot of these publications is you start to see just how complicit uh, you know, the, the entire corporate machine is in dictating the nature of stories that come through those publications, right? So yeah. you start getting up top and then you got editors who are subservient to sponsors. If you're the Washington Post, you know, and Bezos is running that, you know, chances of doing a story on Bernie Sanders and the lead up to the last, uh, you know, Democratic primary. I was reading the, the, the Washington Post and you know, when when Bernie was early in the primaries of this most recent federal election, he was getting a lot of good press by specific journalists who were like hyping Bernie up. And then the second it looked like he was actually gaining some traction and squeaking past. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Mm -hmm. And it looks like he could potentially be a legitimate um uh, nominee uh, for the DNC over Biden suddenly the Washington Post's tone as it pertained to Bernie shifted dramatically. Yeah. Like suddenly they the same journalists who just a couple weeks earlier were like, Bernie are crushing him. Oh, it's a bad look. Oh, what he said about Cuba, that ain't good. Or actually, no, this is bad or it's bullshit. Oh, how are we gonna pay for this? And you know, you know, I feel an allegedly moment that essentially you have the richest one of the richest men in the West and one of the richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos, who owns this publication, who doesn't want to be taxed out of the ass, right? Yeah. He's been skating federal taxes, corporate income tax for years, right? I'm sure they pay a lot, but you know, it gets to the point where somebody like Bernie becomes a viable candidate who actually can hit Amazon 
not where it hurts because I, I think they're quite capable of, of feeding money back into, you know, our ecosystem. Suddenly the tone shifts and Bernie's got to go bye-bye. And there's a lot of liaison, liaison uh, and lobbyist efforts between the DNC and the Washington Post. And you, and, and you, if you're paying attention and not only paying attention, if you're in the media, if you're there, yeah. you see the bullshit and do not speak to the bullshit. I did a big story on a big businessman for Forbes. I was on this contributor contract and there were things that I, I felt were really alarming. Uh, uh, things he was doing well, but things that I felt were really alarming. And I felt there was a responsibility to speak to those things that I felt were pretty alarming. Right. And I get a call from his PR the night before and they're like, Kurt, uh, you know, uh, we can't this, uh, you know, blah, 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 this, oh blah, blah, goodness. blah. And I'm like, and a couple things I was like, maybe you misphrased that. Maybe I'll tweet that a little bit before it goes live, but I'm not budging on this. The next day, uh, his, his, uh, team is like, you know, this guy's a billionaire sends a cease and desist, um, to, you. to, to, to Forbes, to Forbes okay. uh, saying it was a unfair journal without any indication as to what, what was wrong or what was this or what was unfactual. No, none of that. It was just, it was just pressure and it starts moving its way up. And what happens is, is you realize is this guy and his company, along with like some Chinese conglomerate that purchased Forbes years ago are actually investors in the company that owns Forbes. So this guy, oh my after the lawyer shit doesn't work, this guy can come in through the top and put pressure on, trickle down pressure from the people right. who finance this organization to crush that story. And I was let go from the contributor contract for not unfair journalism or stating something that was yeah. speculative or factually incorrect, but because I went out of my swim lane, which is like your subject matter. I, I swerved okay. a, a too far away from arts and culture into business, even though I was signed off on doing a story on this businessman, this right. billionaire sort of transforming this, this relatively or maybe perhaps once major U.S. city via art activations, right? He was like, so beautified. it was on right, point. Right, so it's like bringing me in as a journalist to talk about all the great stuff he's doing with art, but don't take a peek behind the curtain of what you're doing with your business. And not all bad, a lot of good, good stuff going on, but there were some things that were dramatically concerning. And it was more about behavior that could potentially lead to the exact problems that put us in that situation back in 2008. So if I point to, hey, this is the same, the I same see. thing, we're doing the same thing. And he goes, no, we can't, we can't have any, we're not going to have anything that could speak negatively to what his business is doing and how, uh, you know, his uh, stock prices might follow suit or whatever larger regulatory scrutiny may, uh, uh, manifest after the publication of that. So this guy's like, with enough money, enough intimidation, enough behind the scenes connection, not only can you crush a story, right. but you can crush the writer crushing the story. And this is sort of where I've always lived. I'd rather be the person to stir that up and, and take that hit than be the guy who's gonna like write some little fluff piece who, yeah. who you know, so where you often see me criticizing my peers, so to speak, is for them quite often follow the money and the, and we all need to live, right? Like some people, I don't have kids and stuff like that. Like some people got to do what they got to do to have their job. And maybe for them, they're willing to compromise to maintain that secure lifestyle and maintain that position. But for me, it's always been about like, I'm, I'm going to go in, I'm going to go in and I'm willing, I'm willing to take that heat. 
And if I got to scramble, if I got to work my way up again, or if I got to step out for right. a little bit, I'm going to, but I'm going to remain true to my values and, yeah. and, and remain true to what I think the job is really about, which is holding truth to power. And I think a lot of journalists have been so deprived of power that they're willing to maneuver into those spaces and yeah. compromise and and maybe you know create sort of topical constructs around them that isolate them from that very criticism right. you know so i mean i i think that you know if, if we look at history and you know the recent years or different nations cultures whenever something gets shaken up um you know you guys are at the front line um you guys are the not to be, you know, too um, cheesy about it, but you are at the front lines of everything, right? You are the voice of everybody. You're supposed to be that mirror that's supposed to reflect. Uh, let me tell you something. Reality. And by getting rid of our frontliners, our journalists, what are we doing? Right. And obviously this is becoming a problem for us. Absolutely. And, and it's a num I think it's the number one problem. And if yeah. we were to correct that, uh, so many things would fall into place. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, but that's it's, it's not convenient. But let me tell you something like this, what you're doing here is combating this. Right. And by the way, so. let me be real about there's listen, I, I've read like 100 articles a day. I can't stop. I wish I could stop reading all this stuff. You know, it's too much information, to be honest. But I want to be clear that there's still good journalists doing good work. You know what I mean? But it's never been more obvious that our media uh, institutions, especially the prestige corporate institutions, are married and tethered to these other partner institutions. Like, I think there's still a lot of great writing in the New York Times, but anyone who doesn't think that they're a propaganda wing for the DNC and big pharma is just like not paying attention, right. you know? So yeah, there's still some good writing going on, but like, are they actively going to support a Republican candidate going forward? I'm not saying they should, I'm not saying I, I should or would necessarily, but like, like we're very obviously at a point where our news organizations have a clear partisan bias mm -hmm. and What's unfortunate about that is sometimes there are subjects or issues that exist outside of these obvious sort of like harsh polarized political binaries. And what's so uh, unfortunate about that is sometimes you have to speak to these stories from a removed perspective. Right. right. So much of journalism, especially through COVID and what happened over the last couple of years with a lot of the uh, like with Black Lives Matter and other components is I liked kind of like stepping back for a little and watching people tell really personal stories. But I do think we're, and I, I would love to see that continue speaking from a, a real sort of place of truth Definitely. to that experience. Yeah. But I also think there's a lot of value to people who can step outside of these raging black and white, red and blue yeah. rivers and step completely outside and critique everything. Exactly. And, and those people, and I kind of consider myself to be one, and anyone who reads my journalism knows I've been down with it for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I know for me and the role I can play now is sort of stepping back. And this also involves a bit of privilege. You know, with some privilege comes some perspective that can be 
invalid in terms of trying to speak to somebody's extremely unique experience that's alien to my sort of experience for various reasons. But then there's also this ability to speak to something a bit more sort of broadly, right? I'm not saying other people aren't capable of doing that. I'm just saying with the freedom that comes with privilege, sometimes you're afforded this opportunity to take that step back. And just because there is that component of privilege doesn't negate the there's veracity, responsibility. the responsibility yeah. and the validity to step back and be like, Bullshit and bullshit. Exactly. And just because I'm calling bullshit over here doesn't mean I'm aligned over here. And just because yeah. I'm calling bullshit over here doesn't mean I'm aligned over here. I'm not aligned with anyone. And it but, also takes you know? a certain um, level of self-awareness and strength to not be married to an opinion. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like sometimes we're so into what we think and when all of a sudden that gets changed or shifted, it's we're scared to admit, wait, hold right. on, I've changed my mind or maybe I was wrong. Yeah. We see that all the time now. And it's, I could safely say we could trace that back to journalism and mm -hmm. the fact that journalism right now, it's not what it's supposed Nobody to be. Nobody admits they're wrong when they mess up. Maybe right. a couple little corrections. Oh, this was this. But right. like the big sweeping nopes, there's yeah. never course correction. People just keep on plowing forward. Yeah. You know, it's but like, I'm going to die on this hill no matter what. Yeah. You know, I saw this when I was in college. Uh, you know, a lot of like professors, especially like tenured professors, uh, or even on the other side, like emerging adjuncts or PAs, like maybe they're still trying to get their degree and they're teaching a class while still trying to get their master's or PhD, whatever, depending on where you are. But this was my undergrad experience and so many amazing professors, teachers, and, you know, PAs and all this kind of stuff. But there would be these moments where you would run into somebody who either was a dinosaur who's still teaching from their particular thesis that they wrapped up in you 40 know years 40 years ago <laughs> and that's gospel to them that's their entire fiefdom yeah and if you come in like me and everybody gets a clean slate with me but like especially when i was like you know 19 20 21 like i'm gonna push you and test you like a kid like like that cat like cats who like right push things off the table you ever see like videos of cats yeah. going well, i'm gonna do it which is why youth is so valuable right right because they, they're willing to do that right but what i found was like even if you had valid opinions or if you were bringing something new to the table and I mean, you know that, like, let's say you're an English teacher and you've been teaching Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, in, uh, you know, 10th grade uh, class for, for 20 years yeah. and some kid comes up and gives you a different take on, on some component of that story or really any story. And you're so married to your syllabus. You're so married to your thesis. You're so married to all the steps and cog-like tropes of going through the motions of this is how we do it. This is how we look at it. If you're not receptive to somebody coming in and challenging you, then you suck. Mm -hmm. uh, and there I was- I actually saw many people like that. Oh yeah. You know, and God forbid their, their curriculum got shifted or changed right. in any way. Right. You know, I, which is so counterintuitive because to me, one of the most exciting things about being a teacher was that you knew every nine months it was a new start. You yeah. could go back, you know, back down to zero and just rebuild and figure out what didn't work and how am I going to yeah. address that this yeah. time around? Yeah. Like just to think that you're going to do the same thing every single day for sounds ever. Like, sounds like hell. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. It's just so unexciting and just yeah. awful. Yeah, let kids come in and be exciting. And by the right. way, 
the, the moments that were so formative to me, especially as a writer, especially like as a writer where teachers recognize you got some skill, yeah. some talent. And if you know you're good, uh, you know, you got a lot of ego, especially as a kid. And I'm sure I still got some of that now. But the ego best. is not always a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. It's a good, if you know how to harness that energy, yeah. it's a very good thing. I'm always learning. Right? <laughs> uh the best moments for me as a writer in college were those moments where I would like push back and the professor would bitch slap the shit out of me verbally, not physically. Right, right, right. You know, we're past the, the corporal punishment. But like when I'd be like, well, maybe. And the professor in a way that was both forceful and productive would be like, wha-bam, wha-bam, wha-bam. That's why I'm the professor and you're 19. Right. And, you know. And in those moments, like I remember, I had this one teacher who was like a like a like uh, like it was a colonial English literature how you know English colonies respond to British imperialism, mm -hmm. like all the things were that right. And it was this old British woman, very like bird like British lady. And the way the class worked is like we would read, and then we would have to deliver these little pieces of writing. And every class, she would read three out loud, which not a lot of teachers do, like read the work of the writers out loud. And the first thing I wrote, she she read three different ones that she liked. And then she like alluded to, she didn't read it, but she like alluded to a piece one of the students wrote and like started to really like eviscerate it. So she she was like, I like his his use of language and his vibe and his tone, but didn't really agree with some of the points I was making. And I was sitting next to my buddy, Luke, uh, who was like on the same, like in my same class on the same sort of like English major path. And he had read my piece. I had read his piece and he knew that she was critiquing my piece, even though she wasn't reading it. And he was like hitting my leg under the table because he knew as I was getting anonymous criticism that I couldn't help but be like, well, this hypothetical person might have thought that, you know, right. so he was hitting me like, just like, shut up. Just like, don't say anything. Just shut up. And of course, I was like, well, whoever this person was, maybe they felt like and she was like, oh, so not only was it an e like an ego thing, she was like teasing that out of me and was prepared for that retort. She had like one and probably had another one if I wanted to keep going and just like, like a, like a sitting duck was like, bam, you know, she was right. She was right about this yeah. criticism. And, and my buddy with Luke was like, I told you, man, like, I, <laughs> to. you know, I was like walking around campus the rest of the day. But that next assignment, that next assignment, I was like, all right. You're it wasn't ready. just like, I'm going to show, there was that I'm going to show her, but it was also like. The way she handled that was so badass and gentle enough, you know, like like a mama cat like picks up the kittens, like has like a whole head in its mouth. Right. Somehow they're like, all right, you know, like it works. It was like that. It was like in the jaws, but like I'm all right. Like yeah. So when I wrote that next piece, she only read mine. You know, she didn't read any other one. She goes, you know, she comes in the next time. She goes. And she kind of looks at me like, just shut. Like, she looked at me like, just shut up. You know, like she gave me a We're going to do this. And she read just my piece. And I gave this thing everything I had. I really listened to her criticism, right? I didn't, like, that's that good ego where it's like, the good ego is, I'm going to show her what's up this time. And then right. negating the bad part of the ego is not going, well, what the hell does she know? Yeah. It's understanding that 
that she came back with appropriate authority. She came back right. and challenged me back and established the healthy authority. for you to go to the next level. She kind of just did what she yeah. needed to do to elevate me. Exactly. Which involves a, a legitimate bitch slap. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sorry to use that term, but that's what it was like. She's just like, and that moment was so formative to me as a writer. And there were a few of those. Equally formative are those professors and teachers who did the opposite just want to silence and shut mm. you down or tell you it ain't your time it ain't your place yeah. and it's like that ain't that ain't what what i'm here for you know so that also kind of turned me off so a lot of like how i'm operating to this day is i'm constantly looking for those people whether it's older artists or even younger artists whatever who can challenge me in that way and a lot of my writing is deliberately challenging just the public I love and that. trust me i still get i, I still get that. slapped around but i'm always growing you know, but but I'm I'm weary of these institutional spaces. I'm weary of these people. We were saying earlier how people embed themselves into yeah. institutions to, you know, uh, you know, wield whatever authority they have with an iron fist. Right? You play by these rules, and you know, you think in this way. So on one hand, I think learning is amazing, and I'm super down and a huge advocate for always improving, always educating yourself, being educated and putting yourself into scenarios where you're learning new information, uh, being challenged, all these things. But I've simultaneously never been more weary of this idea of having to move through these institutional spaces because largely there's a component of being institutionalized. Yes. And I'm certainly not interested in being anyone's, uh, you know, puppet. puppet. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I do think that this idea that if you want to be a successful artist who gets pulled onto a gallery roster, that you must go through these channels. You must spend 100 Gs to get your MFA. Right. You must read those books. It, it became clear to me as far back as like 2015 that this was becoming a problem in the art world. That like once you, once you move through these established structures, are we really interested in institutionalizing our artists? And, you know, when I look around and I see things squeeze through the cracks that I like, I also see the this sort of homogeny that some people like to say, well, maybe it's a movement. Uh, right. it, well, it's like, yeah, but I don't know. That might be a little generous because I'm seeing a lot of the same shit with a lot of the same language around it. And though it's valid, at some point, do we go, hey, it's time for like real innovation. It's time to move to right. this like sort of next stage. And we've seen this with movements. Like at some point with, you know, that like mid 20th century abstract expressionism, it was like, yo, you're not Pollock. You know, just stop. Time to move on. Just stop. What else do <laughs> yeah. we got? And I think we're seeing a little bit of that with NFTs where it's like, you know, do yeah. we need another like ape another thing with the thing? Another animal wears right? an outfit. Yeah. Do we really yeah. need that, you know? You know? It's, um, yeah, I agree. It was such a pleasure to talk wasn't to you. Wasn't this nice? Yeah. I come in, I come uh, with a lot. I hope that I, wasn't too much. No. You were delightful. You... I hope I didn't oh, steamroll or anything. No, 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 absolutely not. I feel like I could talk to you for hours I think and so. hours and hours. Yeah. We have so much in common, much more than I thought. Uh, maybe we'll fire this up again when you come to the fair later yes. today with the fam and oh, maybe Diana, God. who's amazing. Check out Diana too, like yes. her, her, her drop and her, work her work. Is, yeah. uh, and, and to end it on, on a, a nice note to yes. bring back Diana. So Dan, you were mentioning about um, these artists getting all these degrees. So Diana is like a classically trained artist. You know, mm -hmm. she's studying in Italy and France and all these places. Yeah. 
And I think one of the cool things about her that I think is cool, she had the vision to want to bring art to the masses, which is why she started in street art. Mm. So even though she has all this classic components in her yeah. tool belt, she started off doing murals in Wynwood 10 years ago when that wasn't the thing. Right. Just because she saw the value of people, the right. everyday person yes. being exposed to art. Um, and uh, to bring it back to you guys, that's exactly what you guys are doing with Superfine. That's right. And we don't want you to feel intimidated. No. Sometimes, sometimes I roll up into a space yeah. still and I'm, I'm maneuvering around in those spheres and have been, but there's sometimes I still move into a space and I'm like, ah, I feel, yeah. you know, like, it's too stuffy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so again, I like everything and the type of curator or journalist I am, I'm that fly on the wall. And I've always prided myself in being able to move around to all these different spheres. Yes. And I will push back if those different spheres are too insular. And they're like, you're not welcome here, or this this is what this is, you wouldn't get it, or this is sort of coded, or it's right. not for you, or, you know, that makes me a little nervous. I, I hope the art world can come come back together in a way and understand that, yeah, people have these different sort of cultural perspectives on things that may involve a unique aesthetic, and totally. But we have to keep the door open for us to, number one, do this. I mean, how... How different are our lives in in so many ways? I'm sure, right. but but how often did we connect over yeah. over music, over art? There's so many things that bind us yeah. and unite us that I think are considerably more powerful than those things that separate us. And I'm really nervous about a lot of this like idea that there's like a sort of like a new separate but equal in the art world where it's like, no, we want, we, we want separate. It's just never been equal. We're down with truly separate and equal. And I don't think we should be as separate as we are. I think people need space to flex without people putting their grubby man hands on right. stuff. Right. That's something I gotta be careful of. Like, let me put my like white man hands on your shit and tell you, Diana, let me tell you, you know, this yeah. coffee mug, the swirl needs to be a little bit more, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, shut up. Right. But I also think that we got to be careful with the people who do that and being that there are people who do that, put their grubby hands on other people's work and sort of step on their creative freedoms or step on their message or dilute or, or pollute right. the, the vibes. If you're doing that, stop. But if you have a different set of identifiers, if you're a different age, race, gender, or sexual orientation, for me, and and coming from an English major, part of the reason I wanted to do that major is I understood from an early age, I understood in high school- that To have the, an English degree as well. The best way to learn for me, the best way to learn for me, and the best way to really operate through life is you either find something interesting, you find a subject interesting, or a subject emerges, whether it's a book, a book you've never read, you gotta do a book report on a book, or it's a figure, it's a historical figure, or it's a contemporary figure. You may be really interested in what they're doing, you may know nothing about them, but the act of writing to me is a journey of empathy and sort of greater understanding and then also contributing to the conversation, right? Like good writing is not just parroting back what you've already read. It's it's doing that, downloading that, processing and adding to the discussion, right? Because for me, writing is sacred because what largely we're here for, for a million other reasons, is to 
constantly sort of complexify and sort of grow and become, you know, take in more data that sort of feeds into the machine that fuels this, this increasing sort of complexifying sort of uh, this matrix, this web, this lattice that we have, right? We are, we are these creatures who are sort of largely connected to one another, right. who outside of sharing love, right, and connecting from a place of love, we're here to accumulate more information and complexify. And for me as a writer, I want to engage with art and artists who don't look like me, who haven't had the exact same experience I've had. I want to sit down across from these people if they're alive. And if they're not alive, uh, I'm going to do my best to investigate what they were about. And I will fight to maintain my ability to do that because I've seen it work. And so those people who mess it up and, and step on people's toes and tap, step on people's spirits, stop, get out of my way because I don't do that. I'm not always perfect and I, I may slip up, but don't put walls up between us. That's not what, what art's about. Art's about breaking down walls, not building walls. And we have to maintain that conduit to connect because we all have these blind spots, right? I'm sure I got a bunch of blind spots. I don't know what it's like to be a mother of two glorious little daughters. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what that's like, but but I hope it, I can come to you in good faith and be like, yo, what's that like? Yeah, you know, and exactly. you can tell me, and then my life is enriched by having that information and 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 hearing you clearly and, and empathizing with your experience. I mean, as cliche as it is, there's more that always unites us than divides us. You know, uh, like yeah, you and I, we both have English degrees. Mm -hmm. Like even though yeah. we did something, totally I have different, I have all these I have all these books. There's a couple I don't have, but like like listen, you can read Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. Yeah. You don't have to be, uh, you know, uh, a little a princely psychopathic white dude in the 80s to exactly. get down with that book, you know. And so I'm just saying or, you know, Orwell, like a lot of these like 20th century white dudes, you know, there's a larger conversation like, you know, do we do we right now really want to entertain these sort of like deceased sort of lingering white monoliths? Like, do we really? It's like, yeah, we do. This is living. We're living in an Orwellian nightmare. If you're allowing, uh, you know, the, the identity or the identifiers of that author from getting in the way of really, really important and relevant information for how to better navigate an increasingly authoritarian and Orwellian landscape. If you're letting the fact that Orwell's like a, a, a dead white guy get in the way from procuring right. and downloading that information, you you're the problem. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. You know, it's so dangerous to focus on the things that quote unquote separate us. You know, yeah, because everything you could say, everything separates us. Yeah, I want to know. We're all so different, but at the same time, we're all the same. What up? You and know? and I know as I'm maneuvering through the world, there's moments of privilege, moments of access, yeah. and all that stuff. But, but everyone has those. You know, it's not just you. I have moments of privilege, and you know, yeah. I'm technically like I'm right. I'm, I'm a minority. I'm a woman, and I was I'm Hispanic. I was born in Cuba, mm. like. But right. I have moments of privilege that I acknowledge and right. it's just part of life, I think, yeah. you know? I stole this line. Maybe we can leave it here. I stole yeah. this line from, I didn't steal it from him. He put it out into the world <laughs> and I'm going to give him credit. We're going to borrow it. But uh, 
Ronan Farrow, largely the yeah. the literary architect of of Me Too, right, as an ally for these women who have, you know, many of them have legitimately been on the other end of some terribly abusive, if not full on rapey behavior and sexual abuse and harassment. I think he did a, a right around that time where Me Too was popping. I don't know it was like 2017, was maybe. I uh, think so, right? Uh, you know this this thing about believing women like we know part of wokeness is we understand what that means right we understand what believe women means which means starting from a place of honoring someone's experience really hearing right. a woman when she says hey this is what's up and this is a correlation to let's say black people in the united united states who go yo i'm experiencing this right one thing that art is really about and why why it's important i think for people who have different identifiers to be able to connect to these moments, whether it's, you know, me speaking to Rose McGowan or me speaking to a young black artist who's being like, yo, like this is what my life is like, is starting from a place of hearing, right? And honoring their experience, right? And coming from an ethos of, I'm gonna give you some benefit of the doubt, but what Ronan said, which I really like, and this is what I apply to everything, is you can honor someone's experience and still maintain a healthy sense of journalistic skepticism. And that's what's up. I'll start from a place of hearing you. Listen. But if you say something to me yeah. that sounds like bullshit, if I ask you, if I dig a little deeper journalistically to get down to the veracity of what you're saying, we have to be careful that that's not immediately misconstrued as not believing or inflicting some sort of like cultural violence upon you, right? Because right. we, again, and this is where we started, we have to arrive, and this is a word that I really liked lately, is like, and maybe not, but I think another part of existence is arriving at like consensus. You know, a, not a compromise, but arriving at a consensus. We have to work towards that. And when we do, I think like the universe smiles when people come to a consensus, they go, oh yeah. And to get to that consensus, we have to speak to each other. And so on another hand, again, like I think why just this formatting and, and you know, people have been talking about this forever, it's cliche, but, but the value of doing this, and this is coming from somebody who, when I get introduced at the fair, ooh, Kurt's a great writer. He's written for <laughs> these people and this people. And I go, ooh, I'm so fancy, but never have I felt more removed and disconnected. And, and frankly, I don't give a shit. Right. Like when I was starting and I was dropping some ink in the New York Times, it was so thrilling to me. And to be honest, it's still always nice. It's nice to maintain that that access or whatever the clout. But it doesn't I, I don't I don't hinge my identity right. upon that place. I don't hinge my identity upon that gallery or upon that institution or whatever. This is my identity. This is this is who I am, you know, and all that is is decoration for who I am and and I know how I'm going to operate and it's going to be free you know and and this idea of being a freelancer you know this this comes from like a knight on a horse in the mm -hmm. middle ages running around getting into a bunch of adventures slaying some dragons some some damsels in distress uh distress and rescuing your your bros you know like what what like moving from one thing to the next yeah. and solving some problems and and doing your best to do the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing is criticizing things that are maybe, you know, getting some sort of uh, traction in some way and it's a little bit disruptive, 
you know, and stepping in and saying, oh, I don't think that's right, actually, or I think you're actually wrong. You know, people who, you know, walk, walk into a room and say, hey, I don't think we should be doing this anymore. And everybody says, no, wrong, disinformation, misinformation, bad, canceled, go, buy, get, kill yourself. Right. And then two weeks later, they're right. And we eventually have to arrive at a point where we're like, what is the, uh, what are the larger agendas or, uh, you know, consolidated agenda of these institutions to achieve what? Mm -hmm. And I think as long as you sort of follow that, uh, you know, you, you can live a life uh, that's more aware. It comes with some problems. Like yeah. the, the more you see, you know, the, the, the more stress you got to take on and not everybody thinks that way. Some people right. go through their life in a very they want to you know? right. They want to keep their head down, let everything yeah. just be okay, and and live in a very comfortable bubble. But you know, like you just reminded me when when I was in the classroom, I, and there was always that kid that would say, "I have a, a stupid question." They were mm. hesitant, yeah. and then you get that typical like, "There's no such thing as a stupid question." Mm. Well, no, there are some stupid <laughs> questions. Yeah, there, are, yeah. there are, but I would always say, you know, if there's anything I ever teach you. Let it be to question everything, even me right now. Question everything, yourself, me, the people you're listening to, because I think the question is the healthiest thing. And if the question is going to lead you somewhere and the answer is, quote unquote, safe, you're good. And if you discover something new, well, even better. On that note. This was so nice. Thank you. That was beautiful. You're a delight. And I can't wait to have you back. Likewise. Yeah. You, when you come back to Miami. I don't know. When are you coming to New York? New York scares me, dude. <laughs> New York scares me. Let me tell you something. Not to, you know, we, let's end there, but New York's a little scarier than it was a couple of years ago. And I haven't been yeah. in a couple of years. Yeah. Last yeah. time I was in New York yeah. was way before the pandemic. Yeah. I might have to take like a little self-defense class before coming to New York right now. I'm not joking. I'm not trying to be alarmist. Like it's a little feisty right now, you know? <sighs> Like the, the tolls of a lot of people not moving through that city, a lot yeah. of people going through difficult times, like are manifesting, manifesting in, in, in a real way. Uh, sorry, like the tourist board of New York, but <laughs> but the realities of what's what's happened uh, over the last couple of years are, are manifest in a way where, you know, I moved into Brooklyn back in 2008 from Long Island, you know. Uh, and so from 2008 to now, I, that's a decent run, yeah. a decent survey of the vibe, the tone, the g general logistics, the culture of that city, right? It, mm. it, it, all the different sort of vectoral levels. And it, the vibe's different. And it's a, there's some moments where it's like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. you got to like, you know, you know, like look over your shoulder, keep an eye out. It's a little bit more rugged out there. You know, there's been a return to the the nostalgic days yeah. of New York. You're like one thing. One thing that's good about like the COVID is like nobody's like waxing nostalgic about like the 80s and shit anymore. Like, oh man, the 80s. It's like no, nah, we we seen some shit. Shut up, that's over. Yeah. You know, it was tough. It's it's like a little rugged again. Like, let's move on. You know. Right. Anyway, but you've been amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Likewise. And thank you for everything you're doing for the fair and for art in Miami. And Come just by. Everything else. Yeah, we'll have all the links down below. And hopefully we'll see a lot of people out there tonight okay. and tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes back again. 